Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and how you can improve the past. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode with philosopher Joe Carsmith is probably, uh, probably our most challenging episode to date, I would say. The first reason for that is that we dive into some pretty tricky philosophy uh, and move through those topics at, at a pretty good clip. And on top of that, Joe is reacting to a debate among philosophers and global priorities researchers and trying to rebut an attitude that he thinks that some people like me hold. And that debate is one that we haven't fully covered on the show before. So there's a risk that for many people, it could sound a bit like joining a conversation halfway through. So to help make it a bit easier to follow and to help you figure out whether it's for you, I'm going to give a bit more of a summary of the whole conversation here at the start than we usually do, or at least I'm going to try to give my gloss of it. The first section is the most straightforward. Basically, Joe talks about the drowning child thought experiment from Peter Singer and why he thinks it can make people feel like they're being strong-armed into doing the right thing by effectively being called complete jerks. He worries that this alienates some people from their own intrinsic desire to do the right thing. Uh, And so Joe offers a variation on the drowning child thought experiment that highlights that we really do want to help others in cases where we can do a lot of good for them at little cost to ourselves, Uh, not because of guilt, but just out of compassion and, and sincere concern. Joe and I uh, then move on and dive into his PhD thesis, which he recently completed and which is called A Stranger Priority, Topics at the Outer Reaches of Effective Altruism. It covers a number of somewhat recent ideas that have come out of philosophy uh, that, if true, could potentially upend our understanding of the world in a pretty big way. We talk about two of those from the thesis and a third, which uh, Joe has written about on his website. The first big crazy idea is that we might be living in a computer simulation because, in a nutshell, if most civilizations go on to run many computer simulations of their past history, then most beings who perceive themselves as living in that history uh, must be in computer simulations. This is a basic idea that you might have heard before, uh, and it's one which Joe examines in his thesis and modifies uh, to try to make it more robust to criticism. At the end of the day, Joe doesn't know of a good rebuttal to the basic argument for taking this simulation hypothesis seriously. Uh, and, and if it were right, it seems like that should, should be a really big deal. The second crazy idea is that we might have the ability to influence places and times on which we can't have any causal effect. So crazy though it may sound, if parallel universes existed, uh, parallel universes that we could never reach or you know uh, touch or anything like that, we might nonetheless be able to improve our expectations of what they are like by changing how we behave and knowing that the way other beings elsewhere in this broad universe decide what to do is correlated with the way that we decide what to do. Basically, uh, there's the possibility that we can have effects on the world that are not causal in the way we normally understand them. Indeed, uh, philosophers have come up with this term acausal to describe these potential influences that we might have that we uh, kind of lack intuitions about. The third is that the universe might be infinitely large, which can create all sorts of problems for our theories of ethics. The easiest to explain issue here, although not actually uh, the most serious one, is that if the universe is infinitely large and so contains an infinite amount of good in it, then doing an additional good thing doesn't increase how good the universe is in total. And so you might naively judge it uh, as, as pointless. This idea has come up on the show before in episodes 42, Amanda Askell on tackling the ethics of infinity, as well as much more recently, uh, episode 139, Alan Hayek on puzzles and paradoxes in probability and expected value. In reality, Joe is worried about other more complex problems that infinities create. 
And during his PhD, Joe looked into this topic and tried to find ways to adjust our theories of normative ethics so that they could be compatible uh, with a universe that might be infinite in scope. But he basically just found more ways that this was a problem for every theory of ethics that we have, basically. And he concluded that any way of dealing with it is going to have to violate our common sense in all sorts of ways. So having briefly considered these three ways in which philosophy might really undercut uh, our common sense understanding of the world, we then think about how at a high level we should handle um, these cases and, and, other, and other similar ones. I explained to Joe that I find thinking about topics like this really disorientating and demoralizing as well, uh, because it makes me feel incredibly out of my depth. And like this deep uncertainty about the nature of the world means that anything I do might turn out to be completely misguided and overturned by, by some later discovery. I don't really see how I can hope to reach meaningful conclusions on fundamental issues like this, where you know even experts seem to be all over the map yet they might determine what it is that it's right and wrong for me to do. So it, at some level, it makes me tempted to just give up on the, on the project of doing good entirely and just focus on uh, you know, a much smaller local concerns that I feel I have more of a grip on. Joe sympathizes with all of that and explains that he thinks that most people shouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about these topics and people should feel free to ignore them if they aren't finding them useful. For Joe, uh, life comes before philosophy, and philosophy is meant to be a tool for living with a higher level of awareness and clarity about things. And if your philosophy starts to break, then he thinks that your life probably shouldn't be breaking with it. Just ignoring issues that one is unlikely to act on usefully uh, is always an option. And indeed, it's the option that we choose uh, for most topics uh, most of the time because there's just only so much we can think about. And even though on some level we might feel very adrift because of the uncertainty that exists you know, in, in philosophy and about the, the nature of the world, Joe points out that none of us is so uncertain that we really believe that just starting to act completely at random and hurting ourselves, for example, uh, that doing that would be as good as doing anything else. And the fact that we still feel that way is probably a sign of, uh, of some level of deep wisdom. That said, Joe thinks that it's important that listeners appreciate that we're far from having all the answers about the nature of the world or a complete and satisfying theory of moral philosophy that can wrap everything up. And that's because if people feel confident that they've got it figured out, then they might make big mistakes, like trying to commit humanity to a particular vision of the future. Or they might take radical and dangerous and uncooperative actions that would only make sense if someone were very confident that they knew uh, what was right and wrong. Indeed, he has written about the above topics in part because he worries that uh, maybe me and perhaps some listeners are too confident about what sort of future we ought to be aiming for and how to get there and lack an appropriate, a sensible level of confusion about, about the situation in which we find ourselves. Indeed, uh, he, he says that if we kind of embrace this idea that humanity as a whole is to some extent out of its depth in trying to improve uh, the world uh, given its current state, then this actually probably does shift our priorities in at least one uh, pretty concrete way. He suggests that becoming a wiser civilization in the long term may be our best bet for dealing with the profound issues that we don't understand today, uh, an approach which Joe calls wisdom long-termism. Basically, he thinks that if we think that we really are uncertain about many things, then first of all, we have to keep humanity's options open. And basically today, work on issues that are so urgent that they can't be delegated to future generations. And otherwise, try to put civilization as a whole on a track 
where it can become much wiser than we are today and, and hopefully at some point down the road answer a lot of the questions that we feel incapable of satisfactorily uh, dealing with today. So in summary, I guess Joe's key message is that profound philosophical ideas are worth taking seriously, but we also have to hold them lightly and with maturity uh, and not get uh, too sucked into them. And that focusing our efforts on creating a wise future civilization that can properly deal with these issues uh, later on uh, may be our best response, uh, given the limited capacities that we find ourselves with right now. All right, so that's a summary of the arc of the conversation and the attitude that Joe is responding to. Uh, and I think uh, the, the key points that came up, are, at least as I understand them. The reason to give the summary is that I think it will help people make more sense of what we're talking about and also avoid getting sucked into many of the kind of technical details and arguments that Joe refers to, which can certainly be confusing, but which you know aren't so key to the broader points being made. That said, I'm going to chime in with some clarifications and definitions during the interview. Uh, so hopefully it's educational, uh, even if you find it tricky to uh, fully follow uh, some of the points that are being made. Oh, one thing I will just quickly note is that Joe Cosmith works at Open Philanthropy, which is 80,000 Hours' biggest donor. All right, without further ado, I bring you Joe Cosmith. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Cosmith. Joe is a senior research analyst at Open Philanthropy, where he has worked since 2018. His research focuses on risks to humanity's long-term future, and in particular at Open Philanthropy, he has helped with research trying to estimate when AI would be capable of different kinds of tasks, and uh, he's worked on a report on whether AI systems should be expected to converge on generalized power-seeking behavior and whether that would be a problem. He's a philosopher by training, having done his undergrad at Yale before completing a philosophy PhD at Oxford University on the strangest issues that arise in global priorities research. He's also a well-known writer and blogger who has an extensive corpus of research on all sorts of different topics on his website, joecarsmith.com. And many of those articles you can hear on his podcast feed, uh, Joe Carsmith Audio. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Joe. Thanks for having me, Rob. I hope uh, to talk about whether we're living in a computer simulation and how one can cope when philosophy demolishes just one piece too many of our common sense. But first, uh, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? So most recently, I've been thinking about moral uncertainty and uncertainty about worldviews in general. Uh, And I'm doing that partly in the context of informing open philanthropies thinking about the topic, but I also think it's just important more generally to approaching high stakes and kind of big ideas with the right type of moderation and maturity. In particular, I think there's something about the existing discourse about moral uncertainty that feels kind of fake to me. And I think part of that is that it places a lot of emphasis on the idea of moral theories and your credences in moral theories. Um, And I, I have some sense that this isn't the right way to understand the kind of richness and tension of human moral life. And and I think there are some alternative models, uh, in particular, that emphasize more cooperation between different parts of yourself um, and different motivations you might have and perspectives that I I see as kind of more promising. And so I've been exploring some of that. Yeah. So uh, moral uncertainty for people who need a refresher is this idea that, well, you know, if if you think there's a 50% chance that utilitarianism is true, so you should just focus on consequences. And there's 50% chance that some particular deontological theory is true, uh, you know, and so you shouldn't break any particular rules, then you would do some kind of averaging between them. uh, And maybe, you know, you'd you'd try to, you'd focus on consequences, except in the cases where you'd be forced to break some prohibition, according to the other theory. Something about that feels kind of forced to you, is that right? Or it doesn't feel like it's capturing the spirit that you want people to, to be acting with? Yeah. I, just as a, a sort of intuition pump, I don't, I don't think people really go around with kind of 
credences on deontology and credences on consequentialism. Or I think that's like not a very natural description. If, if you go out and look at people's moral life and you ask them. So like, by the way, are you like 60% on deontology, 80%? And, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of ways in which philosophy uses kind of artificial models of psychology and, and other things um, to make various sort of abstract points. But I think it's, yeah. it's kind of a clue that maybe, maybe we're missing something in what's going on when people feel torn between different perspectives and different ways of looking at things that, our way of setting it up doesn't fit super well with um, with what you would have naively said about people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think uh, some of those things will come come in later in the conversation. But I, I wanted to open with a topic that's not exactly the core theme of the interview, but I, but I think will help to uh, motivate uh, why we're going to go through all this effort to try to sincerely understand the world, uh, even when it's taking us to irritating places. Uh, I think most listeners will be familiar with the drowning child thought experiment from Peter Singer. It uh, might be one of the most influential thought experiments, uh, at least in, in moral philosophy, in the in the last uh, last century or so. Yeah, actually, yeah, can you very quickly remind us of the of the drowning child thought experiment and then explain what, what reservations you have about it? Sure. So the basic setup is that there is a child drowning in a pond and you can save the child, but only by ruining your clothes. And let's say in particular, uh, it's, it's like a very expensive suit, thousands of dollars, uh, though that wasn't specified in the original experiment. Um, and the basic claim is A, you're morally obligated in this sort of situation to save the child and to ruin your clothes. And B, that many people in the world, including many listeners to this podcast, would be in a morally analogous situation towards um, the world's needy. So, you know, the kind of implication being that uh, just as you're obligated to save the child, you're obligated to um, donate money or, or otherwise take kind of um, costly actions to help to help others around the world. So I think this this thought experiment is with suitable caveats, pointing at something really important about about the world um, and something I take seriously, I think we should move cautiously in diagnosing the lesson that this thought experiment gives. I, I think it's it's there's something important here, but I think we shouldn't assume too quickly we know what that is. At a separate level, though, I think psychologically, the thought experiment, for me, creates too easily a kind of quasi-adversarial and reluctant and kind of coercive relationship to the sort of morality in question. So in particular, I think it conjures this image of, I'm over here, I've got kind of the stuff that I care about directly, and, and the stuff that is sort of, that matters to me. And then morality kind of comes comes in from outside, and it's sort of like taxes, like it sort of wants to take some of my stuff, and some of what I care about, uh, for the sake of something that I, I like don't care about. But apparently the rules say I like have to give something up for and and so you can get into this mindset and i think this is the discourse that that the kind of peter singer conversation conjures is this sense of like okay well how much is enough how much do i quote unquote have to give to kind of have played by the to rules the or yeah. yeah to be off the hook uh and you know what is demanded and what is what is okay to not do um and I think, you know, I think there's something important about that, but I also think it's it's maybe not the the right frame or the only frame or the frame that I would want to kind of start with. Yeah, what um what sorts of negative effects do you uh, think reflecting on that thought experiment uh, a great deal can have on people? Or maybe that you've observed it having on people? So I think there's there are a number of sorts of effects, some of which I see as kind of entirely negative and some of which are kind of mixed. The effect it had on me when I first encountered it. So, you know, I, I encountered this sort of thought experiment in high school. Um, and like many people, I was sort of like, you know, I was kind of convinced. Right? I was like, wow, this is this is a really this is a powerful argument. This is an important consideration. 
And so I went around and I talked with lots of people about it and I would, um, and often they were reasonably convinced too, or they didn't have some sort of devastating retort or anything like that. Yeah. But nevertheless, like neither they nor I was sort of acting on the apparent conclusion of this argument. And so that, I think for me, so, you know, I had this feeling of like, wait, so are we just giving up on morality or (laughs) like, you know, so we said it was wrong. So I guess we all suck, right? Yeah, it was sort of like that. It was sort of like, ah, you know, we we said it was wrong, but we're going to still keep doing it. Like, what's going on here? But yeah, the lesson of the thought experiment is that we suck and actually we don't care. Maybe that's the bottom line. Uh. And that's, yeah, that's right. I think that's the sort of takeaway a lot of people have. And I think what that can do is it can sort of break your conception of yourself as a kind of morally sincere agent. And at a deeper level, it can kind of break your conception of society and your peers as a sort of, or society as a morally sincere endeavor in some sense. It's like things can start to seem kind of like sick at their core. And we're just all like looking away from the sense in which we were like horrible people or something like that. Yeah. And I th- actually think part of the attraction of, of communities like the effective altruism community for many people is it sort of offers a vision of a recovery of a certain sort of moral sincerity of like, oh, you find you find this community and it's, it's like, oh, actually, these people are sort of maybe trying more so than you had encountered previously to like really take this stuff seriously to sort of act rightly by its lights. And I think that can be a, a powerful idea. But I think there is this, you know, then this thing comes up where it's like, okay, but how much is enough? Like how exactly how far do you go with this? Um, what What is demanded? And I think I think people can end up in a mode where their relationship with this is is sort of what you said. It's sort of about not being bad, not sucking. Like you thought maybe I sucked. And now you're really you're really trying not to suck. You don't want to be kind of punished or like worthy of reproach. And so it's a lot about something about like guilt. I think I think that the thought experiment itself is it's sort of about calling you an asshole. Like it's sort of it, you know it's kind of like ah gotcha. If, if you didn't say the child like you're an asshole. Yeah. Uh, and so everyone's an asshole. But but look at, look at how you're living the rest of your life. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And you know I think sometimes sometimes you're an asshole and and we need to be able to notice that. But I also think. Well, for one thing, it's like it's actually not clear to me that you're an asshole for not donating to charity. That's not something that we we normally think. So I think that's like um, we should notice that. But also, it doesn't seem to me like a very healthy or kind of wholehearted basis for engaging with this stuff. And I think there are kind of alternatives that are better. Yeah, I think I, I recall in a, another interview you did that uh, you said you, you worry that uh, there's a generation of people who from hearing a great deal like that this thought experiment is kind of one of the key ideas in morality that, that, that they've heard that they have this almost like low level of trauma or sense of alienation from the idea of doing the right thing because it's coming at them like this hostile force that is trying to shut down their party they were having a good time and the police have arrived and now they've got to have like the way to live a good life would be to give away everything to, to live in penury and they don't feel like that but now they're but now they're just torn up about it yeah i think the term, the term in my head, I, I call it like Peter Singeritis, um, <laughs> which is sort of somehow, you know, somehow this broke something about your conception of yourself and your conception of the world. And I think that can be a sense of like the party. It can be a sense of being a good person. It can be a sense of like what it would be to try to do what you should do. All sorts of kind of subtle forms of alienation from the idea of like a moral and good and kind of uh, sincere life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I should say uh, far from everyone, but, but potentially at least like uh, some people it's, it's had this effect on. But yeah, you have this uh, variant thought experiment that kind of captures a similar idea, but which at the same time tries to capture the, uh, the intuition with a very different emotional tone to it. Yeah. C- can you explain that? Sure. So it's not, it's not super different, but I find it lands kind of in my head differently. I really like taking walks and I think it's good to do 
to do the like thing that you're paying or giving up, I think it's good for that to be something that you kind of have a direct connection with valuing. I feel like suits and clothes, it's sort of like, ah, it's like shallow. <laughs> it's sort of calling you like, oh, what, you and your clothes, like you. <laughs> um, but it's like, I don't know, walks, it's sort of like more wholesome. I just like, it does make, the, the thought experiment does make me wonder whether philosophers have never heard of dry cleaning, but I suppose that's kind of, that's kind of trivial empirical issue uh, <laughs> relative to the moral ones. Sorry, I'll carry, yeah, yeah. carry on. There's piranhas in the <laughs> pond. They'll like shred your suit. Uh, <laughs> we can uh, patch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the thought experiment sort of. I imagine going off for a walk. You know, it's like a, a beautiful fall day. I've been looking forward to this. And as I'm about to enter the forest, I see kind of far away in the distance. There's this river, and I see there's some sort of commotion by the river. But you know, the light is fading, and you know, so I just don't. I don't go to the river. I just go on my walk, and I come back, and it's great. But then I learned later that uh, while I was on my walk, there was a man who was drowning in the river, and he was pinned under some sort of machinery. His leg was caught. There were people there trying to move the machinery. You know, his his wife was in the water with him. Uh, you know, his child was there watching. It was this, it was this thing. And, you know, they couldn't move. They couldn't move the machinery. Uh, and they thought maybe one extra person would have made the difference. Um, and the intuition this pumps for me is some sense of, like, I kind of just directly want to trade my walk away and kind of say have this man live instead um you know if i imagine maybe it's going to the river though that's a little complicated but even if it's just a sort of cleaner thing i just imagine i can go back in time i sort of disappear in my walk i just never i'm i just don't exist for that afternoon and instead somehow this man's leg gets free somehow you know he flops out onto the the shore of the river and and his life has his entire life uh, and his family has him back and i just sort of feel a direct like I just want to make that trade. I just think that's that's just worth it from my own perspective. I sort of want that man to live more than I want me to have this walk. And yeah, no, no one's twisting your no one's twisting your arm. I guess is the is the key thing. It's that you were you 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 have a great level of regret that you didn't realize that, and so you did you weren't able to make this trade. Yeah, that's right. I'm trying to sort of skip the part where you're an asshole and just cut to the stakes themselves and just kind of connect more to just the sense of like, oh, actually, this is something that I care about too. Rather than setting up this sort of conflict of like, oh, there's the thing you care about and then there's the thing over there that morality demands that you kind of sacrifice for instead. Yeah, and I guess where do we where do we go with that? Because I suppose someone could that they'll encounter that and think, yes, I I would love to not have gone on the walk and been able to save this other person's life instead, if only I'd realized. But then they might continue down the chain of reasoning and think, but I'm in this situation, <laughs> I'm in a, in a situation that resembles this in normal life, and I don't. So maybe they end. Uh, you could still end up with a degree of alienation, or, or kind of you might conclude yourself that you kind of are the jerk who, who would rather take take the walk. Yeah, I think I think the thought experiment doesn't sort of resolve all of the stuff that comes up with Singer. So as you say, you know, there's still a question of like, okay, what are you going to do now? Also, notably, you know, in part of what's doing the work in the thought experiment is that you didn't know that you could save the guy. Uh, but yeah, as you say. You know, our actual situation with respect to kind of donating to charity and stuff, you know, obviously there's uncertainty about exactly what the impact is, but we know a lot more about what we could do. Um, and so it's not, I think, a, a perfect analogy for our, our current situation. It also doesn't answer stuff about like, okay, suppose you go out and it's always, every time you go on a walk, there's a guy, there's a guy drowning. Um, just, and, yeah. you know, not, not, not just one, like it's just, just all, all the, yeah, there's like many re recurring every, every mile or two. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just a line of, it's like someone fix this machinery, please. Yeah. Like, why is this? <laughs> just, um, yeah. Irresponsible uh, business. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think for me, it's, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that this changes the conversation in a super structural way. It's more just a way of tuning into a sense of kind of direct connection with the stakes themselves and, and a sense that that can be something that's kind of coming from your perspective in the same way you care about other things in your life, you can care about other people. And I just think that's kind of useful to remember and a more kind of wholehearted initial approach. Like sometimes in, sometimes in these contexts, people talk about these different framings where there's, there's the obligation framing, which is the like, you'll be bad guilt. And then there's this other sort of what's sometimes called the opportunity framing, which is, ooh, isn't it exciting that I can save lives in the same way? Oh, wouldn't it be amazing to have like saved someone from a burning building? I actually feel like neither of these is the most resonant framing for me that the kind of first one is too guilty and coercive. The second one's kind of too happy mm. and excited. <laughs> but I feel like there's like this middle or this other one, which is just like, oh, you just care about this thing. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily a happy thing. There's like a lot of grief and sadness sometimes. I mean, but it's, it's also not a kind of guilt, necessarily a guilt-based externalized pressure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there is something perverse about imagining someone uh, coming upon a burning building with sort of glee, excitement that uh, finally they have an opportunity to <laughs> to, to show them their, their more chops. There's something that's like perverse about that as well. Yeah. And I guess you're, you're trying to find something that's a, I guess, a, a middle ground of, of sorts. As I understand it, a priority for you with your writing recently has been, yeah, trying to take not just this idea, but other ideas related to effective altruism or long-termism or you know, trying to do good in the world and trying to bring out the aspects of them that you think are likely to be the, the most emotionally resonant for, for readers. Why, why, why have you kind of uh, taken on that challenge? So I, mean, I think the most basic answer is that I just think this stuff is real. It's not a game. And I think, I think tuning into that just kind of is emotional. You know, we're talking about really high stakes stuff, stuff that really matters. And I think it's important to just kind of see that clearly. I also think I also think that our emotional orientation towards these issues, you know, the sense in which they feel kind of real and visceral and compelling, I think that's important more broadly to a bunch of a bunch of things. So I think it's important to our motivations. I think it's important to how much of our humanity we're kind of bringing to the project of trying to help others. And I think it's also in sometimes subtle ways, quite important to our epistemology and our, our, like, I think if, I think if something feels real and visceral, that's like a sign about its, its reality. It's, it's, it's a signal that has sort of been processed at sometimes implicit and unconscious parts of your epistemic system in a way that has kind of passed a bunch of checks for like, yeah, this is important and, and worth acting on. Whereas I think, so I think if you're, if you're kind of find yourself in relation to this stuff, living entirely in a mode that feels kind of dead and, and, uh, kind of unreal and, and totally abstract, I think that's that's like a warning sign. It's like maybe maybe you're misunderstanding. Maybe some part of you isn't convinced of this or some part of you doesn't care about it. And I think that's that's like worth noticing. And um, But I think in practice, this stuff is, I think it's just like really seen in the right light. It's just very visceral and, and, and important. And so I think it's just useful to bring that out. Yeah. Is, is there a, a good or, you know, kind of simple example of, of an idea that you think is often presented in a in a dry or maybe even hostile way where, uh, you know, it, it could relatively straightforwardly presented in, in a maybe presented in a more resonant way? Sure. So one one example I've written about is the idea of the value of creating new happy lives that wouldn't have otherwise existed. So there's this, in my opinion, somewhat strange discourse in philosophy where the idea is that it's somehow intuitive and a kind of datum that we should be trying to capture that there's just nothing matters about creating new wonderful lives that's just a sort of neutral act and the hard thing is kind of designing a population ethics that can capture this supposed 
datum. And I just think when you when you look at this from a different angle, it just doesn't, to me, seem true or, or at all intuitive that this is a sort of neutral act. I think, in fact, if you, if you look at it, creating someone's entire life, a life of sort of richness and beauty that they value hugely is sort of very significant. So when I think about my own life and everything, you know, all of the kind of beauty and kind of joy and, you know, even the pain and all, all everything that my own life means to me, you know, friends and relationships and music and leaves in the fall and all, all sorts of things. It's And I imagine someone who has a chance to create me or do something else, like take a walk and who chooses to create me, I have this sense of this is a, a time for real gratitude. This was an incredibly significant thing this person did for me. Um, and I, I, yeah, I feel like I want to approach them in an attitude similar to someone who saved my life. You know, I sort of owe, owe everything to this person. And so similarly, if I imagine being in a position to create someone else um, where they would value their life in the way that I value mine, that again seems similarly significant. And I also have some sort of golden rule energy about it. It's like, I would want people to create me, so I should do unto others the same in, in kind of suitably similar circumstances. So that's one where I'm just like, if you reframe it, I just think this is not, you know, there is a, an accessible orientation towards this where it's it's emotionally compelling in a way that the philosophy doesn't always capture. And also that I think people lose touch with. So I think some people, when they think about like the stakes of extinction, they sort of think, oh, well, it's like, I know future people, it's like hard to get a grip on, but apparently something, something population ethics, this matters a lot. But I actually think if you, you know, if you tune in, you're like all of these people, they're equally real. There's this, you know, this, then I just think it, it's, it's much more directly compelling and that can be important to our motivations and our sense of those stakes. Yeah. Well, what about the case of having children? Uh, setting aside the question of what, you know, whether you might have any duty to have uh, kids if they would have a great life or not. Uh, if you present the case to someone of, you know, imagine that you had children, or, you know, a child, they went on to live this fantastic, rich, fulfilling life. They, uh, they accomplished things for other people. Um, you know, they experienced a wide range of things. And then, you know, on their deathbed, they were like very satisfied with, with, with how things had gone. Um, and, and you knew, and, you know, uh, I don't know, somehow from heaven, you could like look down and, and see how their life had played out. Like, would you think that it was good that you had had kids in retrospect because you'd uh, created this person who had had this wonderful life um i feel like in that case i don't know it is it is kind of intuitive that you'd feel like like maybe maybe you didn't have to do it but it was it was nice that you did yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure whether the philosophers uh how much how much they talk to parents i don't know <laughs> yeah i agree it, it's especially if you frame it i think this is useful it's as a pro tanto we're not saying like oh all things considered this is how all the considerations shake out. I think that's a substantially more complicated question. But the idea that it's just like a zero, it's like neutral. I'm kind of like, why? Why would we be trying to say that? that that's a really good one. Is there a, is there another one that's easy to explain? Another one for me is just the notion of utility in the context of utilitarianism. I feel like this is just the worst word. I, so I'm not a utilitarian. <laughs> But, you know, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about like a huge portion of the substance of what makes life meaningful. We're using this word that connotes something kind of dry and functional and, and you know, and similar even, I think, for something like pleasure, the kind of central example of pleasure is, I don't know, like heroin, rats on heroin or like orgasms or, or something like that. And, and, and or, or some kind of more futuristic utilitarians, they'll use this notion of like hedonium, which is this sort of computationally optimized pleasure and then sort of tiling the universe with it or something like that. And it calls to mind this kind of sterile and uniform and kind of cold vision where actually I think, so, you know, I think there's more to life than pleasure, but I think, you know, pleasure in the deep sense, in the sense of, you know, the best, just how good experience can be is something really profound. I, th I, I think, you know, at the least you should be imagining something that is appearing to you as kind of 
something of like sublimity and energy and boundlessness, something kind of roaring with life and kind of love and victory, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's not, it's not that in particular, but it's like, you really, you should really think of like the best, the best things can, how good experience can be, which I think is really a lot and, and then be extrapolating from there. And I feel like the discourse of, of, around the idea of, of pleasure just doesn't, doesn't capture that. So that's another one where it just, it seems to me like a, th- there's just ways this gets talked about that doesn't capture the, the real stakes. Yeah. Yeah. As you were saying that, it was occurring to me that I think I almost always stay away from the word utility, except when I'm like really forced to, because uh, there's there's some technical case. Uh, I think I almost, I usually say well-being and if not that, uh, maybe flourishing is, is, is another one. Uh, and, and I guess, yeah, as, as you're saying, pleasure... Uh, I mean, some, sometimes say pleasure, but uh, pleasure is maybe it, it has this sense that it's, you can you get pleasure from from food, but you know, do you get pleasure from having a relationship? Do you get pleasure from you know achieving something great at work? It's not something that you would normally say, so it has this more narrow connotation. Even though usually we're just talking about kind of all positive experiences that uh, that people could have much more broadly. Totally. I mean, I actually think there's, there's a sort of broader issue here, which is that something about abstraction itself. Like there's a point a friend of mine made to me a few weeks back, which is this idea of sometimes, you know, in context, you're talking about how to do the most good, you end up talking about numbers and, and you want to, and people can be sort of dismissive of the notion of numbers. But sort of when you're talking about numbers, you're talking about actually just, a, you know, you say a million people died, you're talking about, you know, one person and another person and another person and another person. You're talking about a bunch of concrete things at once. And I think that, and I think that's also true of, you know, when we use notions like, factory farms or we use, we use the idea of suffering or, or you talk about future people. These sound like these abstractions and they're, and they're abstract because they're trying to cover a lot of stuff. But the stuff that it's trying to cover is all just as detailed and visceral as, as everything else. So I think there's a way we just have to work if you're trying to kind of talk about a lot of the world at once. You have to work to remember the detail um, and concreteness of, of the ultimate thing you're referring to. Yeah. One rat on heroin is a blessing, Joe, but a million rats on heroin. That's just a statistic. <laughs> Um, <laughs> what are the, what are the personal values of yours that, uh, yeah, motivate you to, to care to, to try to help other people, even when it's kind of a drag or, uh, or demoralizing or, feel, or it feels like you're not making progress? So one value that I, that's important to me, though, it's a little hard to communicate is something about quote unquote, like looking, looking myself and the world in the eye. So it's something about kind of taking responsibility for what I'm doing what kind of force I'm going to be in the world in different circumstances, trying to understand myself, understand the world, and kind of uh, understand what I'm, what in fact I, I am in relationship to it, and, and to kind of choose that and endorse that with a sense of, of agency and, and ownership. And so one, one way that shows up for me in the context of helping others is trying to take really seriously that, I, that my mind is not the world that that the kind of limits of my experience are not the limits of what's real and you know in particular so like i wake up and i'm just like joe every day every day it's just like joe stuff i, I wake up and it's sort of this, this sphere of, of joe around me so it's sort of joe stuff is sort of really salient and vivid there's this sort of zone um you know it's not it's not just my experience there's also like people and you know my kitchen there's things that are kind of vivid and then there's a sort of part of the world that's much more um that my brain is doing a lot less to model but that doesn't mean the thing is less real. It's just my brain is doing a lot, is like putting in a lot fewer resources to modeling it. And so things like other people are just as real as I am. When something happens to me, that's not a sort of, at least from a certain perspective, that's not a sort of fundamentally different type of event than when something happens to someone else. So there's part of kind of living in the real world for me is, is kind of living in light of that fact and trying to really 
stay in connection with just how just that that sort of other people are just as real as I am. And then I think more broadly, there's this when when we talk about forms of altruism that are kind of more fully impartial or trying to be kind of ask questions like what is really the most good I can do. I think that's for me a lot about trying to live in the world as a whole. So not sort of artificially limiting which parts of the world I'm treating as sort of real or significant because I'm not I don't live in just like one part of the world. When I act, I act in a way that affects the whole world or that can affect the whole world. And so there's some sense in which I want to I want to be not sort of imposing some myopia up front on what is is sort of in scope for me. And I think I think that's those are those are both kind of core for me in terms of what helping others is about. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to, uh, to to a bunch of that uh, later on. These kind of questions of uh, how does one emotionally grapple with the, the challenges of the world, and how does one remain motivated, and kind of what maybe what is the right attitude to have toward, towards all of this. Um, I think some of what you're saying uh, resonates, uh, but but for me, sometimes it can feel a, bit, a little bit heavy, a little bit a little bit um, serious. I almost want to find something a bit more frivolous in there uh, in order to, to to keep me sane. But yeah, we'll we'll come back to that in a later section. But for now, uh, let's push on to yeah the the big thing we're going to cover today, which is I guess there's, there's multiple different different names for it, uh, but I think kind of you and I have both sometimes referred to this as the as the crazy train or, or the or, or the train to crazy town. Yeah, re- regular listeners might recall this this crazy train expression from episode ninety uh, with Ajaya Kotra. I think Ajaya may have even uh, actually actually come come up with this term. I, I think it's a rock song from the eighties, but anyway, at least in this context, so she's come up with the crazy train. But um. You completed your PhD thesis uh, recently, and it's uh, titled A Stranger Priority, uh, Topics at the Outer Reaches of Effective Altruism. Uh, and it kind of has the crazy train or the, the train to crazy town as a unifying theme. Can, can you explain uh, what, what that idea is? The basic idea with the crazy train is that there's a certain kind of broadly Bayesian, scope-sensitive, quantitatively oriented philosophy that tries to take seriously just how kind of big and strange the world can be, just how um, big our impact on the world could in principle be. And... This is a sort of philosophy that I'm interested in, various other people are interested in, and that has been used to argue for conclusions like strong long-termism, which is this idea that, you know, if you if you crunch the numbers and you really think about how, how many people there are in the future um, or could be in the future, that positively influencing the long-term future should be the kind of overwhelming moral priority, um, at least from a, an impartial perspective. This is an idea in, for example, Nick Bostrom's paper, Astronomical Waste, sort of draws on a simple version of this argument, and it's been developed uh, more recently in papers like The Case for Strong Long-Termism by Hillary Graves and Will McCaskill. I think this, so this has been discussed on the show quite a bit. There's also sort of weaker versions of long-termism that don't go so far as to say it's it's an overwhelming moral priority, but they sort of draw on some similar vibes and ideas in in arguing for their conclusion. And so I think it's easy to look at this discourse and to look at this type of philosophy and say, okay, well, you know, strong long-termism is the kind of philosophically principled position here. It's what it's where you end up if you take these sort of ideas seriously and, and you're willing to kind of say some of the counterintuitive things that they imply. And, and the real question is sort of more about, okay, but are these ideas sort of too in conflict with our common sense? Are they too kind of extreme? Um, are they compatible with various other kind of important values we hold? And so that's sort of one reading of the dialectic. I think it's easy to, to be in that narrative. And, and Ajaya talks about that narrative on the podcast. But I actually think it's not that simple. And the the sort of philosophy in question, broadly construed, 
actually brings up a bunch of other questions and uncertainties, and that when you sort of take this, uh, when you keep keep doing this sort of reasoning, or you or you take it to other places, um, things get quite a bit murkier. And I think that's a sort of important fact. And so that's that's the the broad narrative of of the crazy train. Yeah, so it's it's, it's a little bit related to the idea of crucial considerations, I suppose. So crucial considerations are these like big ideas that might significantly change kind of what you think you ought to do. Like not just say, you know, you should do this 10% less, but like maybe you should do the opposite of what you were doing before. Or maybe you should focus on a completely different thing and, you, and, you, and you've had the wrong idea all along. And maybe the, the crazy trend is like it's, it's going on to like further and further stops, like potentially overturning the things that you thought before and overturning more and more aspects of common sense that you were living with before you started this project of trying to make, make everything better. But yeah, so crazy train, as I understand it, you kind of don't like that maybe because it presupposes that these ideas are crazy when maybe we should uh, have, have a slightly more uh, neutral uh, attitude towards it going in. Is, is, is that the issue? So I think there's a few issues. Um, I, th- I have issues both with the term crazy and with the term train. And I actually think the train <laughs> problem is, is bigger. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, crazy. It's it's sort of pejorative. I, I feel like anytime you're in a, you're in a context and someone's like, "Well, there's the this idea, and then there's this other idea. Let's call the other idea the the bad idea, um, or the, uh, you know, the wrong idea." Um, that I think uh, you you know you gotta you gotta wonder whether the framing here is influencing things. And you know, more so obviously, these ideas are are sort of I think undeniably strange in some sense and and kind of unfamiliar. And I think that's important. But I don't want to sort of prejudge what we can learn from them. And I also don't want to prejudge kind of. Like crazy sort of makes it sound like either either you're going to recognize that this is totally crazy and get off the boat, or you're going to go crazy uh, and sort of like and there's no middle ground. Um, there's no sort of way to handle this stuff maturely and with like different amounts of weight and balance and stuff like that. So I, I don't like that. Yeah, and so I think the idea of a train it suggests okay, there's a kind of single train, just one train, and it's and there's a single ordering of the stops, and you have to get off at one place in particular, and also there's a sort of single place that it's going, um, and the question is just sort of how far you ride, how far you, like, let let it take you. You're not doing it. You know, the train is, is kind of pulling you there. And I think that basically none of that is true. And so, I, you know, I think there are a lot of different ways into this stuff. There's not a sort of single craziness metric that's, like, kind of linearly, that's just, like, increasing along one dimension. Um, I think you can reject a bunch of ideas associated with uh, long-termism and, and, and other ideas in this space, but still get bitten by a bunch of these issues. So I don't think it's sort of just, just people who've kind of accepted a bunch of things who have to deal with this. And then I think maybe most importantly, the, it doesn't go to one place in particular. There, there's a, a sort of whole kind of garden of branching paths and different forms of uncertainty. Uh, sometimes things just like break. It's not as though it's like, oh, there's just like this clear conclusion, but it's clearly wrong. And, um, it's more like, you know, it just sort of your tools start to break down and you have to start sort of forging new track. So I don't have I don't have a, a super better term that I want to propose. Um, the term that, that Aaron at Open Philanthropy suggested that I liked, he suggested we, we something about the, the wilderness, which I like. Um, mm. And so maybe, maybe, you know, the philosophical wilderness where this calls to mind, all right, there's a lot of ways in. It is kind of unfamiliar and strange. You're sort of far away from home. Maybe you're going to get lost. There's a risk of getting lost. There's a risk of getting eaten by something, you know, so uh, it's not. (laughs) But also there's sort of a lot of different, there's a kind of exploration dimension. You're sort of pushing into new territory. And also there's like a lot of different paths forward. So I think I think that's probably better in practice. You know, I've sort of gotten used to the term the crazy train. I do use it in my thesis. I'll probably just use it here, but I want to emphasize its its limitations. Yeah, yeah. I suppose um, 
Yeah, for, for a pleasing tone, I, I like the woodenness. Uh, maybe the it feels more like a sampler platter, though, as you're saying, because it's not it's not a linear thing where you might only accept the later stops if you've accepted the earlier stops and stayed on. It's more like a range of different ideas that you can dabble with, that or or each you know eat to a different extent. So you have like I don't know the sampler platter of peculiarity. <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually that's useful. I, the th- I think that neither of these does well is it sort of suggests that you can only be in one place at a given time. Whereas, in fact, I think the right way to hold a lot of these ideas is with sort of differing levels of weight and letting them influence you in different ways. So personally, for example, I treat various of of the kind of confusions and uncertainties and interesting arguments in this vicinity as kind of clues that there's something here to learn, that that it's worth paying attention to this. There's some way in which I'm confused. It's not necessarily that the, the craziest conclusion coming out of this is true, but apparently reasoning that I took seriously in other contexts is saying something weird, um, I should pay attention. But that doesn't mean I should upend my life, I should kind of divert all my resources to this or, or anything like that. To reach that practical bar, I personally impose a much higher standard of feeling like resonantly convinced, feeling like I like really understand this idea. But somehow the idea of getting off at a stop doesn't allow for this kind of gradation in your response. It's not, it doesn't have a like, oh, well, you can kind of be interested in this, you can learn more without acting on it. It's just like either you're either you're here, or you're here, or you're here. And I, and I don't think that's a, a useful lack of nuance. Yeah. Before we go up to the salad bar of batshit crazy ideas, is, is there anything else you'd like to say about what, what attitude we, we, should, we should bring to this discussion? Yeah. So I guess I want to say a few things up front. I do think these topics require some caveats. One thing, just in terms of my own work, most of what I've worked on, you know, and, and written about is not, is not this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote about these topics in my thesis centrally in a kind of particular academic context that values a certain type of intellectual contribution and isn't centrally asking the question sort of what's the most important topic to be thinking about. And so I'm not, I'm not here to say like, this is the most important topic to be thinking about. We need like tons more people working on it or anything like that. I think these ideas are interesting and and have non-zero relevance to, to kind of important stuff. But I think, yeah, I just want to be clear about kind of how central this is to, to kind of what I'm doing in the world. Uh, and what I think other people should be doing. Yeah, so more generally, I think in approaching these topics, we want to find a balance between, on the one hand, being kind of reflexively dismissive and closed and kind of just like, ha-ha, in a way that doesn't let us kind of learn anything new. And on the other hand, being kind of too credulous and excited and just like grabbing hold of some random conclusion and like running with it or, or kind of holding these things too heavily. And 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 so, you know, on the first hand, I do think... We want to be able to learn new things from thinking and from philosophy. That is, that is sort of the point. And, and new things, you know, they're genuinely new uh, and, and can be strange and, and unfamiliar. And I think sometimes reactions to this stuff are kind of born partly of the, of the unfamiliarity and the sense of like, oh, I haven't really thought about this. I don't really know what it is. Uh, and that can sort of that can change sometimes over time. And learning new stuff can be kind of disorienting and, and destabilizing and, and unpleasant. Um, but it's, you know, it's often worth it. I think there's a good track record of like learning new stuff and following up on, on ways in which our models break and, and, and ways in which we're confused. On the other hand, I do think there's just so many ways to, to approach these topics and kind of go wrong um, that I, I do, I do worry. Um, so, you know, as just a, a few examples, I think, um, yeah, one is that I think people, these topics can be kind of intellectual catnip in a way that is can be kind of unhelpful and distracting, you know, especially, you know, relative to kind of more grounded and, and real world stuff. I think there are ways to kind of fail to track all of the ongoing confusions 
and assumptions that are kind of going into various of these arguments and, and topics such that you can feel like, oh, this is on like solid ground. I've totally learned this new thing. But in fact, there's like a bunch of structure and a bunch of additional uncertainty. So I think I think people can just like quickly become overconfident that they know what's up with some of this stuff um, and that there's like a particular conclusion that falls out of it. And I, I think that's often premature. I do think for some people, these topics can be kind of destabilizing um, and like psychologically unhelpful. And so I just want to give people permission, like if, 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 or just, if you notice that it seems like, ah, this isn't showing up in my world in a very helpful way, it doesn't feel like my psychology is interacting with this in, in a good way, then, you know, it's really okay to just put it down. <laughs> and then finally, I think a thing I've noticed was with some of this stuff, some topics, they're sufficiently weird that I feel like people, when they talk about them, they enter into this kind of intellectual la-la land where they, they kind of lower their standards intellectually for for argument and it, it's somehow not a serious topic and so they feel permission to just kind of say whatever they want i find this in particular in context of like sims when you talk about we're going to talk about simulations a little bit and, and in my experience sometimes even like very secular kind of otherwise rigorous people when they start talking about sims suddenly it's just like the floodgates are open and they feel like they could just like make stuff up and and say whatever um and kind of speculate about about all sorts of stuff in a way that seems to me often quite divorced from serious thinking. I have an essay where I call it sort of this notion of like simulation woo, where I feel like people get kind of wooey about simulations and where they wouldn't wouldn't otherwise. And and, and I actually think that's a feature of, of kind of unfamiliar topics more broadly, that when you're charting new terrain, there's less structure, there's less sort of existing tradition of thinking about it. Um, but I actually think that's a case where you need sort of more rigor and more carefulness rather than less. And I think I think we often go wrong there too. So that's a bunch of caveats about this stuff, but I, I wanted to say that because it is it is weird. Yeah, I feel like with with all of this build up, we've really got to bring the crazy now to to justify it all. Uh, if 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 we bring something lame, like just tell people <laughs> tell people that there's difficulty, you know, philosophically fully grounding induction, I think they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, that's right. That's the whole thing, actually. Is guys, causation? <laughs> Have you heard? Have you heard? We don't know. We don't know. Is it, what's up with it? You know, is it real? <laughs> no, I think I, I, I think we've got some bangers. So um, the disorientating topic that we should talk about first, I think, is the idea that maybe we could be living in a computer simulation, uh, which is something quite a few philosophers have written about. What is the key argument for for the proposition that maybe maybe we are living in a computer simulation? So the argument that I take most seriously isn't an argument for the claim that we are living in a computer simulation. It's an argument for a constraint on our beliefs in this vicinity and in specific and specifically our credences. So we're assuming that we have credences sort of probability or it means kind of the probability you assign to something. And the constraint is that you can't assign non-trivial probability to it being the case both that you are not living in a computer simulation and it being the case that most people who are suitably like you are living in a computer simulation. And so suitably like you requires some unpacking, but for simplicity in this context, I think the the relevant sort of similarity we can use the idea of people who who live who find themselves apparently living in a sort of stage of civilization prior to a kind of technological maturity. And so it looks like there's like a ton of technology that we could develop that our civilization could be like vastly larger and, and have like vastly more powerful capabilities, but that's not where we're at yet. We find ourselves at an earlier stage. So call call people who have those sorts of experiences early seeming people. And the claim would be you can't have non-trivial probability on it being the case both that you are an, uh, not a sim and that most early seeming people are sims. I see. So yeah, uh, the, the basic idea is if 
if most people who are having experiences like yours, who are living in worlds like the one that yours apparently is, if most of them are living in computer simulations, then you should think that probably you are as well. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so that's, that's the basic idea. So that's the structure. I suppose it, it, it's quite abstract. So maybe we should give, you know, like uh, what reason should we give to think that it is the case that most people are living you know, living in the world uh, that is apparently the, the way that, it, that, that we see it, that they would be perhaps living in computer simulations? So the way you can start to wonder about those sorts of worlds, gets a, it gets a little slippery, but roughly speaking, we start out by saying, oh, like, okay, how, how much computational power would it take to run a simulation of various kinds? And, you know, you can do some estimates of that, and then you can do some estimates of how much computational power would be available to a very advanced civilization. And it's sort of this very, very large number such that it, it looks like, at least for certain sorts of simulations, a kind of advanced civilization could run many, many simulations of human history or, or uh, of you know people living in this era for a kind of tiny fraction of their overall resources. So you would have thought, just kind of extrapolating from kind of our basic scientific picture of the world and how simulations work and neuroscience and stuff like that, that um, it's at least quite plausible that advanced civilizations would run lots of simulations of early seeming people. And so you start to take seriously that you live in those worlds, but then you notice, ah, if that's the world, then this constraint that I talk about bites. And so there's a question like, okay, do I, so does that mean I take whatever credence I had in those worlds and give it to my being a sim, or do I change my credence on those worlds? And there, and there things get muddier, but it shows that some sort of revision to our common sense is required. Yeah. So, so there could be all kinds of reasons why possibly uh, there could be simulations of people like us being run. And of course, it's extremely mysterious because if that is the case, then we don't know what the world outside the simulation is like. We don't know what the beings simulating us would be like and what their motivation might be. But, you know, we could come up with stories that are kind of plausible about why we as a, you know, humanity, if it continues for millions of years and, you know, ends up with incredible technological uh, capabilities and able to harness, you know, all of the energy of the sun, like, would we potentially turn some of that towards, you know, running simulations of, of our history in order, you know, for science or technology or perhaps just out of curiosity as or, you know, uh, as performance art? I don't know. And then if if we, given that it would be extremely cheap for us to do that at that stage, maybe we would do it a lot. Maybe we would do it again and again and again and just, you know, uh, learn about the differences or create different uh, different worlds just um, to, to sate our curiosity and learn more about how, you know, what things might, what other things might be out in the universe, for example, or what kind of stuff is possible. Could, could be really fascinating. And then you're like, so that's like one plausible story. And there might be other ones as, as well. And if we did do that, then there would be very many simulations, perhaps. And so now we're in. Now we're bitten by this <laughs> by this uh, constraint. You said you'd have to say they would run very few, or there are, it's very unlikely that that uh, would ever happen. Or we should think that maybe we are. Yes, but I do want to flag that I think there can be something quite slippery about this particular way of framing it. And this is something that disturbed me when I first encountered the argument. There's a few forms of slipperiness here. One is if we start with trying to make salient the hypothesis that we do live in this sort of world where there's a lot of sims of early seeming people. And we do it by first talking about a bunch of empirical claims about, for example, the computational power that would be required to run a sim, the computational power available to an advanced civilization. I think there is this weird uh, kind of self-undermining quality that the argument can start to take on, where we, we condition on those empirical claims being true, and then we assign some portion of that credence to being in a sim. But if we're in a sim, then 
the sort of empirical claims were, were derived from evidence that wasn't about the world simulating us. And so it doesn't look like we actually had very good evidence for those, those claims. And so there's, there's some self-undermining quality there. There's also a, a different, though related thing, which is that, um, you know, the way you put it is sort of, if we imagine ourselves, you know, first we, we imagine ourselves as, as people who aren't Sims, and then we imagine our future going forward and, and people in the future of us, kind of ahead of us in time, running a bunch of Sims. It can sort of sound like the argument is then saying, ah, and maybe you're one of those people over there. But the way it's been set up, it's sort of the imagery is, is like they're over there and we're sort of pointing ahead of us in time. And, and you, you aren't, you can't be over there. Uh, we're not in one of the Sims that our descendants will run because uh, they, that can't happen. Um, and so they wouldn't be our descendants if we're Sims. And so the particular framing where we first talk about what like our civilization will go on to do, I think can get, can get quite slippery as well. And so one of the things I tried to do in the paper I wrote on this topic is sort of set the argument up in a way that doesn't rely on these empirical claims. And I think I think the, the argument bites regardless and is sort of more forceful and, and isn't actually subject to, to these sorts of objections. Yeah. 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 That that's great. I just kind of I feel it's like necessary to give people some idea, like some idea in their mind of like why would there be any simulations at all? Why is why shouldn't we expect that no beings would be interested in, in running simulations? Uh uh and, and then maybe it like feels a little bit more 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 intuitive. I have to say a confession the idea to me that we might be living in a computer simulation isn't very counterintuitive. I know it's, it's it seems very strange to some people, but at least to me, I think even the first time I encountered this, I was like, oh yeah, it makes kind of makes sense. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. I'm I'm really the opposite. I at, in a gut level, I'm still like this is bullshit. I'm like, or or especially, I mean, I think I think a thing underappreciated about uh, the original paper on simulations that um, that doesn't get enough play is that the type of simulation that Bostrom... So Nick Bostrom wrote this paper, Are We Living in Computer Simulation?, which sort of popularized this argument. The type of simulation he's talking about is what's known as a shortcut simulation, which is which means that there's a bunch of stuff that you naively think is kind of detailed and real, but is actually not being simulated. So, so uh, in Bostrom's paper, like, the stars are very unlikely to be simulated in any detail. I think he talks about, like, the microstructure of the Earth doesn't exist when people are looking at it. And I hear that. I, I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> that's some bullshit <laughs> anyway so uh just i think it's interesting how people people react to this in, in different ways yeah it's it's like that uh classic rick and morty episode with the uh, people simulating it and kind of as 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 they're running then they're just uh they've got little robots creating creating the, the space in front of them yeah i guess are, are there any i guess intuitively this is weird to you uh do you think there are any good reasons to doubt the soundness of like the the, the general argument here I think there are, yeah, there are reasons to hesitate. So I think, I think the argument has, the argument as I presented it for this basic constraint, um, which is not an argument for a specific sort of credence on being a sim, strikes me as quite forceful. As far as I can tell, it's not, there's no sort of obvious hole that sort of everyone in the know is aware of. Um, and in fact, some kind of confident dismissals of the argument, including by sort of sometimes prominent scientists, strike me as quite kind of unserious in their engagement with, with the topic. That said, I do think there are a lot of reasons there are remaining reasons for hesitation. Um, one of the most salient to me is that uh, the argument works most naturally in finite worlds where you can talk easily about the sort of ratio of sims to non-sims in different classes of observers. Uh, but we want it to extend to infinite worlds as well, I think. And when we try to do that, the sorts of uniformity principles that Bostrom and, and I and others are going to kind of draw upon in making arguments like, well, if, if 99% of uh, people are sims 
uh, of like blah people are sims then you know uh and you're a blah person then 99 percent you're a sim that sort of reasoning gets a lot weirder and harder in in infinite context and and so just <laughs> to give some intuition for that if you imagine i tell you okay you're it makes sense if i tell you you're one of 10 people in in rooms labeled one through 10 what's the probability you're in room one is very natural to be like okay 10 percent. i'm going to split my credence equally between these rooms if i instead tell you okay you're one in an infinite line of people with rooms labeled with the natural numbers what's the probability you're in room like 52 well <laughs> so you know uh a thing you can't do if you want to have kind of real numbered normal probabilities on each of these rooms and non-zero uh you can't assign uniform credences to each of the rooms because they'll add up to, to more than one so you need to do something else maybe you need to have infinitesimal credences or maybe you need to uh assign unequal credences to the different rooms suddenly we're in sort of new territory now, admittedly, this is territory that cosmology in general has to grapple with. So there's this general problem in cosmology, the measure problem of like, how do we talk about the fraction of observers um, in a big universe that are having different sorts of experiences? And it looks plausible we're going to need some answer to that uh, if we live in an infinite world. And you might think, ah, well, let's just, we'll just apply that to Sims too. But the issue is like, it's not clear that the, that that solution is going to be of the kind of uniformity and difference-ish form that is is normally at stake in the simulation argument as it's presented in the in, a, in a, initially, so I think that's a reason. That's like a reason for pause for me, um, and I think it's connected with another reason for pause is like there are these arguments about Boltzmann brains, which are these sort of like observers generated by random fluctuations in the universe those arguments are actually quite structurally similar to the the simulation argument it's roughly like ah there's this like big class of observers if most observers of blah type are boltzmann brains then you should think you're a boltzmann brain and i'm just like out on being a boltzmann brain i'm like sorry guys i'm not a boltzmann brain uh, I, I read so people different yeah we haven't really defined boltzmann brain here it's, it's something about how you know there's so much matter bouncing around in gas clouds and in stars that couldn't you accidentally end up with something that functionally resembled the mind of an observer like us for a fleeting moment in those structures. I read about this a few years ago and I was just like, I don't have space for this in my life. This is... Because, <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, at least the Wikipedia article at the time said, yeah, it's like most scientists think that this is a sound argument and that like, uh, yes, we should expect most observers to be like this. And yet nobody thinks that they are a Boltzmann brain uh, of this kind. And I was like... I don't know. I've got better things to do than read more about this. I feel confident that I'm that I'm not a Boltzmann brain. Uh, this is like nobody thinks that that, yeah. they, that they are either. But yeah, it's very interesting that it has a slight, it has a somewhat similar character. Hey, listeners, uh, Rob here. I'll just say I think uh, we didn't nail the explanation of what a Boltzmann brain is. There, uh, as as I looked up later, it comes from the idea that some people have proposed, which is that the entire universe sprang from sheer chance from you know uh, random fluctuations uh, in some in, in some broader universe that created this universe that has a remarkable amount of order uh, to it at least initially at the at the big bang i'm not going to be able to explain this well as you as you could probably hear there if you're interested i suggest googling are you a boltzmann brain pbs space time uh, and that will bring up uh, a really nice video that uh, made things uh, a lot clearer to me and is certainly a lot clearer than any, any explanation that that i could give here all right, back to the interview. Yep. And one disanalogy that I think is relevant, and, and it's part of what makes me feel very confident that I'm not a Boltzmann brain, is so all the Boltzmann brains, or sort of almost all of them at any given moment, are about to disintegrate. Like it's, all, it's just like random fluctuation, and then they're, they're about to fall apart. And so if you think you're a Boltzmann brain, you should like be highly confident that you're just like, this is the last moment. You only exist for an instant. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, and also that your memories are, are probably fake. I mean, it's a little complicated. But so I just... 
I'm just out. You know, I don't think that's <laughs> no, right. I don't, I, I'm, it's not, I'm not saying that's too weird. I'm just yeah. like, I think it's wrong. I just think I'm not, I'm just yeah. not a Molson raid. So we need to um, <laughs> figure that out. And I think the Sim stuff is like sufficiently similar that I think that's like another red flag. So there's just like a bunch of ways the Sim argument could be wrong. I don't think we should be like, ah, let's hang our hat on this. But I do think it's like, this is an unusually strong argument for like an unusually dramatic revision in our basic understanding of our existential orientation you don't come across that every day i think and i think if you do you should we should sit up straight we should be like ah there's something to learn here we should we should get someone on this one yeah uh i I like that i I kind of asked you what doubts you had or what reservations you had and you brought in infinite ethics (laughs) to to, to challenge it i feel it's like putting trying to put out a fire with a (laughs) flamethrower of course yeah as you're saying, it's an unusually strong argument for an unusually large revision of our understanding of of our reality. Um, of course, if being in a simulation made no practical difference to anything that we ought to do, then this might be you know a fun discussion topic, but not something that we should spend that much time thinking about. But yet, what might being in a simulation imply about what actions we ought to take, if, if anything? I thought much less about the practical implications of the simulation stuff than just about the, the argument itself. Um, so nothing here is especially confident. I also think it's worth distinguishing between what would the practical implications be if you knew that you lived in a sim and what are the practical implications in our actual epistemic circumstance where we have some uncertainty, maybe some newfound uncertainty and confusion about about the possibility of living in a sim, but uh, are very far from from kind of knowing. And, you know, I think on the former thing, if you knew you lived in a sim, I mean, it's sort of surprising if it makes no difference, right? Uh, it's just because it's... It would be outrageous. <laughs> it, it, and I think people are sometimes like a little too eager for it to make no difference. Like, I think they're sort of like, they hear this argument, they're like, okay, so tell me what, should, should I buy different groceries? No, I thought so. Okay, I'm out. Or something like that. And, and, uh, and so there's some like, um, sometimes a lack of curiosity and like, okay, wait, maybe maybe it's worth thinking about it for more than two minutes about whether this would make a difference if you if you um if your existential situation was radically different than what you thought it was before and so you know ways it can make a difference i think uh maybe maybe most salient to me in the context of questions like long-termism you know i think living in a sim would make it more likely that the future is sort of smaller than a standard long-termist picture would suggest because it's sort of that maybe less likely that all of that was going to be simulated and you know and more broadly stuff about like okay what sort of simulation and who are the simulators and, and all sorts of that sort of stuff is going to become become more relevant. But I think I think it's more productive to actually ask the question, not what if conditional on being in a sim, what would you do? But more like, given where we're currently at, uh, does it make a difference? And there, I think it's plausible that, I mean, I think there's some complexity, but a decent first pass from my perspective is that at least from an impartial kind of altruistic perspective, I think acting like you are a non-sim or what's called a basement person um, <laughs> is uh, a reasonable policy and who came up with that term (laughs) so uh, yeah i don't know i always (laughs) sorry sorry i shouldn't interrupt but i I always thought basement person for ages i thought basement person was like someone being run in a server farm in a basement but no a basement person is someone in like the basement universe that is like the fundamental one rather than someone who's living in the higher floors which are like simulations i that's right (laughs) i feel like we need to go back and change we need to go back and change the term but sorry yes uh sorry carry on yeah so if you're acting like you're a basement person i think is a reasonable first pass policy on this stuff i mean i think there's a number of reasons that's true but one is that the amount of impact you can have if you're a basement person is is still like really unusually large from an from an impartial perspective and so 
you know, if you ask yourself questions like, what would I want, what would I want people who make observations of being in that sort of influential position to do, even granted this stuff about simulations, I think that a reasonable answer is sort of like, well, you'd want them to kind of be especially concerned with the scenario where no, actually, they're they're in this influential position and what they do makes a really big difference. I don't think that's the whole story. I think there is more complexity there. But I think that's, that's a first, a first pass that does sort of dull some of the like, oh, my God, this up ends everything. Yeah. So, so the idea would be, well, if you are in a simulation, then from an impartial point of view, probably the stakes are much lower, because at some point, the simulation is going to be turned off. Uh, so there's just only so much that can be done within this much smaller world. Whereas if we're not, if, if we're actually in the the real underlying world, not not a simulation, then, well, all of the stars really do exist. Uh, you know, time could go on forever. We're not going to be shut down. So, so, so the stakes are much higher. So um, we should act kind of as if we thought that we probably were in that world because it just matters more. Uh, that, that's, that's kind of intuitive. I mean, it would be, yeah, it would be amazing if this radical rethinking of the nature, like the nature of existence, perhaps would have so little impact on what we ought to do. I suppose maybe from a selfish point of view, it might change things a little bit more. Maybe you want to try to keep things spicy and interesting so they don't shut down the simulation. I, don't, I think that's one thing that people have suggested, but it sounds a bit sounds a bit uh, flippant. Yeah, I guess is, yeah. Is there, is there anything more to say on this? Well, I do think I, I think there's quite a bit more to say, and I, I just haven't I haven't thought about this enough to have a confident take. You know, I do I do agree that it's sort of surprising if it makes no difference, I think. But especially if you're just talking about like, oh, I have some new uncertainty about whether I'm in a sim. It's not that surprising given that it's like a lower a, a lower stakes environment, at least from an impartial perspective. And then there's a variety of other kind of considerations in that in, in a somewhat more complicated vein that might suggest that the kind of policy you would have wanted to commit to ahead of time is kind of being the basement people you would have wanted to see in the world or something like that. Um, <laughs> again, I don't think that's the whole story, but I think it's like um, it's something. Uh, a decent first pass from from my current perspective. Yeah, I suppose if uh, if you think many different simulations with minor alterations are being run, then we might bring in this other issue as well that like what you do might affect what your uh, you know twins or very similar you know people in these alternative simulations will do, which then increases the stakes again. But let's let's just set that aside. Um, <laughs> there's this other idea I've heard circulating um, that kind of the more weird and historically significant your life is, uh, the more likely you should think it is that you might be in a in a computer simulation. I, I, I think I actually saw, saw a comic one time. I think it was about Elon Musk. And Elon Musk was like, like, obviously, I'm living in a computer simulation. Like, look at all of the crazy stuff that's happened in my life. Like, does any of this sound like something that actually happens in the real world? Like, obviously, this is this is all being run just for entertainment purposes for, for someone. But I think that actually kind of does have some intuitive appeal that maybe, well, wouldn't you be more likely to, to run simulations? of stuff that was exciting rather than stuff that's that's really boring but uh you uh, you don't think that this uh this this goes through um yeah is, is there a way of explaining why so the specific claim i want to make is that this doesn't fall out of the classic simulation argument that i discussed earlier i think it's possible that you can get some update towards being in a sim from being an unusually influential or weird person or something like that using more complicated anthropic principles, but that's going to get into, I think, substantially gnarlier philosophical territory, which <laughs> in my experience, people who are compelled by this argument don't especially want to explore. Or I, I, my, my view is this argument exerts kind of influence on people's thinking out of proportion to it's like having been worked out and, and making sense. Okay. Um, to give a intuition for why I don't think this falls out of the classic argument, basically in the classic argument, all of your credence on being a non-sim is coming from worlds where there are very few sims like you. And so let's just, you know, and let's like round that off to like no sims. So let's say, you know, a toy example would be, suppose there's two types of worlds. There's world A where 
there's only one planet. It's just Earth. That's the whole universe. And there's two types of hypotheses. One is there's Earth, and then we go extinct, and no one runs any sims. That's world A. And world B, we go on, and we run a thousand simulations of all of our early history, and a million simulations of Elon Musk in particular, <laughs> let's say, right? So it's true that Elon Musk is being simulated much more in uh, world B than, let's say, like a janitor in Des Moines in, uh, you know, 2023. But what should their credences be? Well, what the simulation argument is saying to both the janitor and to Elon is that basically all of your credence on world B needs to go to being a sim. If you if you wake up as a janitor or as Elon, then like conditional on world B, you're probably a sim. But once you assign credences to world B, it's not, it's not, it doesn't follow from the original argument that Elon should have any higher credence in world B than the janitor should have. Because the, the original argument is not trying to get you to make anthropic updates of, it, of that kind. All it's saying is that conditional on the world being a certain way, you, it, such that more, most people like you are sims, then you should think you're probably a sim. Um, and that's true of both Elon and the janitor. It's true that Elon is like a bigger factor, but it's all squeezed into this, into your credence on, on world B, such that like conditional on world B, the janitor is like, well, 99.9% that I'm a sim. And Elon is like 99.9999. But it's all, it's all squeezed in that 50%. So the nines don't make a difference. So that's like an intuition for why I think it doesn't, it doesn't fall out of the original argument. You can also get this a little bit from, if you just reflect, like, I think a lot of what's driving people when they're like, oh my God, if I was Elon or, you know, oh my God, I'm working on AI. That's so weird. I must be in a sim or something like that is the sense of like, oh, this is a very weird and, and unique position in human history. But being an early person at all, living in the 21st century at all, is also a very weird and unique position in human history. So it's it's sort of weird if the, you know, if and I think we're not used to that. Like you sort of think, oh, like being Elon is this very unique thing because you're only looking around at the people today and Elon sort of seems unusual relative to the people today. But if you look at a vast cosmos where almost everyone is like a post-human observer or something like that, being being early at all is very, very weird. And so in general, I think we should be a little surprised if there's some kind of qualitatively different update from being Elon than from being like an early person at all, um, at least at least without getting into some like kind of additional anthropic gnarliness. Okay, I, I must admit, I didn't entirely follow the argument you made there. But I think for what time, let's leave that. Uh, and if people want to dive into it, then they can take a look at your thesis. Hey, listeners, uh, Rob here. Joe mentioned the anthropic principle. Uh, and anthropic reasoning uh, just a bit ago. And I thought this might be a good moment to take you aside for five or 10 minutes to explain uh, what he's talking about there, uh, because I think that will make what comes later a bit easier to understand. Of course, if you uh, feel like you don't need this little intro to anthropics, uh, feel free to skip ahead, of course, to the next section. So anthropics is this little field of philosophy that covers kind of what can you learn about the world? Or what, how, in what way should you update about various facts about the world from the fact of your existence. Among other things, it tries to address the issue of observer selection effects, which uh, refers to biases that are created because there are filters that affect who, if anyone, is going to be able to observe something in the first place. Or perhaps there could be a filter that causes many people to make a particular observation, uh, even if it's relatively rare. As usual, it might be easiest to explain just by uh, going into some concrete arguments. A place that you might have encountered anthropic reasoning in the anthropic principle is in response to the fine-tuning argument. So the fine-tuning argument uh, is used to suggest that the existence of life in the universe can't just be a matter of luck. 
but rather it has to be the result of careful fine-tuning. Uh, and in doing so, it points to certain physical constants like the strength of gravity or the charge of an electron, uh, which seem to be really precisely set. And, and if uh, those constants were just a little bit different, then life as we know it wouldn't be possible and maybe no sort of life would be possible. So this argument suggests that this precision is unlikely to have occurred just by chance, which might imply that the universe must have been intentionally designed or fine-tuned to support life. And the anthropic argument is sort of is a response to this. And the anthropic principle points out that our ability to observe and ponder uh, the universe depends on the fact that we have to exist in the first place. So in other words, we shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves in a universe that supports life, because if it didn't, we wouldn't be here to, to notice. Of course, uh, people invoking this anthropic argument might talk about the possible existence of a multiverse where there's many, many different universes, each with different physical constants. And if there are enough of those universes, then it might not be surprising that at least one, uh, like ours, is capable of supporting life, even if most uh, most don't. Uh, this wouldn't require any intentional fine-tuning. And of course, in such a situation, we would always, uh, observers would always uh, find themselves in, uh, in universes, uh, in parts of the universe that could support life. Uh, they couldn't be otherwise. Uh, I'll just leave you with a, a, another thought experiment that uh, that isn't quite analogous, that is, but is similar and thought-provoking. You can imagine that someone is up against a, a firing squad, uh, and so they're expecting to be killed, and there's 10 different shooters who are all going to shoot them and kill them. Imagine that they find that, miraculously, all 10 guns uh, in the firing squad have failed. They, they all had some mechanical error. And so they didn't. They, they didn't die. They weren't executed. Uh, and perhaps taking this as a, as a sign from as a sign from God, they decide not to proceed with uh, with, with the execution. With having uh, all given that <laughs> all ten guns have mysteriously uh, failed to fire, could the person then say that they're surprised, that they're shocked to observe that all ten guns failed, and uh, like this must be a great mystery that calls for explanation? Or does that not make sense? Because of course they couldn't observe the situation uh, at all unless that had happened. Uh, I'll, I'll just leave that there. Let's move on to another thought experiment uh, from the field of anthropics, which again kind of studies how we should reason and update our beliefs uh, when we get information about our position within a particular group or, or a set of observers. So here's the basic setup of the sleeping beauty uh, uh, problem. Uh, this is one that I really love. So sleeping beauty volunteers for a scientific experiment. On Sunday, she is going to be put to sleep. And a fair coin is then going to be tossed. If the coin comes up heads, she's going to be awakened and interviewed on Monday, and then the experiment will end. On the other hand, if the coin comes up tails, Sleeping Beauty is going to be awakened and interviewed on Monday, then put back to sleep, and then awakened and interviewed again on Tuesday. The memory of the Monday awakening is always erased, so she can't remember it during the Tuesday awakening. Uh, and then after the Monday and the Tuesday awakening, then the experiment will end. So during each awakening, uh, Sleeping Beauty doesn't know what day it is or whether she has been awakened before. So now, whenever Sleeping Beauty is awakened and interviewed, uh, she is asked, what is your credence now for the proposition that the coin landed heads? That is to say, what probability uh, would you assign to the idea that the coin landed heads, given that you've just been awakened? There's two main positions uh, in response to this problem. You have the halfer view, where and, and, and halfers would say that Sleeping Beauty should assign a 50% probability to the coin landing heads. Uh, the reasoning being that the coin toss was a fair one, 
so it has an equal chance of landing heads or tails, um, irrespective of how many times Sleeping Beauty is awakened. Uh, Sleeping Beauty is, is just irrelevant. It's, it's, the answer has to be 50%. The alternative view, one, which you, uh, you might be beginning to suspect now, is uh, called the, the thirder position. And thirders uh, would say that Sleeping Beauty ought to assign a one in three probability to the coin landing heads. The reasoning there is that there are three possible awakening events. There's the case where the coin landed heads and she's being woken up on a Monday. Or there's the case where the coin landed tails and she's being awake, uh, woken up on a Monday. And then, of course, there's a case where the coin landed tails and now she's being awoken on a Tuesday. And it's each of those awakening events that are all equally likely. So given that only one of those three awakening events uh, features the coin coming up heads, that is the case where the coin landed heads and she's waking up on a Monday, then the probability of, of heads is just one in three, uh, not one in two. So yeah, the Sleeping Beauty is a problem is, is interesting uh, because it's not clear which position is correct and people have you know, conflicting intuitions and you know, even, even professionals uh, kind of disagree on this. Personally, I think that the thirder position is correct, that, uh, or that's the one that feels right to me, that the probability of heads is one in three, not 50%. But that does have the interesting implication that things are more likely to be true if they create more observers who are capable of observing them. The underlying issue here with all of this being, uh, what can you update about given of the fact of, of you observing and, and considering a question? Okay, I think that's enough of an introduction to Anthropics. Uh, I'll stick up a link to a really nice video from a YouTuber called uh, Veritasium, uh, who made a video about the Sleeping Beauty problem and uh, just it, it describes a little bit more the, the underlying issues at stake and, and, and the implications. Um, but I think you could get it if you just typed in Sleeping Beauty problem Veritasium. All right, with that out of the way, uh, let's get back to the interview. One other thing I want to say on the... Elon argument, or in my, my blog post, I call it the, but aren't I improbably cool argument. It, and this is related to the thing about how would you want people with different sorts of observations to act? I think it's a kind of scary and worrying prospect for the most powerful and influential people in the world to kind of think that they're in simulations in proportion to their kind of power and influence. <laughs> you know, I think that's just like very, that's like not the policy we would want people to be taking. And certainly for the people who are, uh, you know, looking at them and going like this person, you know, here's this person living in this real world. I'm not, they're not in a sim. This is not some solipsistic thing. Like we're watching you and you're like, think you're in a sim. That's horrible. I'm like scared of what you're going to do. I just think, I think that's like, you just got to go so cautious with that stuff. And I just think it's related. It's, I think this is, there's a direct intuition here. And I think it's also related to the point I wanted to make about like, what sort of basement people would you want people to be and kind of defaulting to that pretty hard for, for a lot of different sorts of reasons. Um, so I just wanted to flag that because I think it's an additional an additional source of hesitation. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I mean, it is fine, fine for the janitor in Des Moines to think they're in a simulation. You really don't want the president to think that they are <laughs> and just start treating yeah, it all you like know, a game. Or like, here's Petrov. Yeah. Exactly. Like these people who are there at pivotal moments and, and, you know, there's Petrov and he's like, oh, well, like this is such a pivotal moment. No way that I'm in a position to influence what happens with, uh, you know, the Cold War. I must be in a sim. Ha ha ha. You know, uh, uh, maybe I'll try to be interesting so it doesn't get cut, shut off. It's like, no, Petrov, like, <laughs> no, wrong. Stop the missiles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stop the missiles. So um, I think that matters a lot. Yeah. And then another thing I, w- I just want to add as a hesitation I have about the sim argument as a whole, though this is more inchoate and and actually draws on an anthropic 
principle that I don't otherwise endorse, so it's a bit complicated. But I think a thing that people don't appreciate about the sim argument is that the most salient hypotheses where there are lots of sims, or where in particular there are many more early-seeming sims than early-seeming non-sims, those hypotheses also involve there being vastly more late-seeming people than early-seeming people, where a late-seeming person is just someone who finds themselves existing in a technologically mature civilization. So even if it's the case that an advanced civilization devotes some fraction of its resources to running sims of of early-seeming people, it still seems very likely by default that the most of what's going on is stuff in the present you know having a post-human civilization like so people who are observing that they live in a unadvanced civilization you know citizens like normal (laughs) citizens workers all sorts of all sorts of things and so there's something i think quite surprising i think sometimes people want to use the simulation hypothesis as a way to be less surprised that they're early or that they're early seeming or that they're Elon, but like you should be surprised that you're early seeming, even if you're a sim, because like the vast majority of people are not early seeming at all, at least on a certain sort of anthropics. And I actually, I think that anthropics is sort of complicated, but I do feel the pull and some of the intuition. I I guess I just want to flag that as like a persistent source of uncertainty for me, where even if you start to say you're a sim, you should sort of still be pretty confused. Like, why aren't I a post-human like flying around in a spaceship like everyone else uh, or or approximately (laughs) everyone else? And so, you know, and that's the sort of logic that leads people to what's called the doomsday argument of saying, no, maybe there are no post-human civilizations at all. And there's a bunch of complexity there. But I just want to flag that as like an additional confusion that's lurking for me and that I think should give us pause. Okay, so uh, yeah, we have definitely haven't done this this topic uh, full justice, uh, but we'll link to the, the chapter from your thesis that's about this and some other good resources for people who are interested to hear more about uh, yeah this kind of reasoning and I suppose uh, people's reservations about it. Let's push on to a different kind of surprising bit of philosophy, which might be important or, or maybe not, uh, but uh, but it's called uh, d- decision theory, and decision theory is this kind of established field of in philosophy that shouldn't really by all rights uh, be so exciting or, or all that strange but yeah some people working on related issues uh including you have kind of mounted an argument which i think is kind of gradually gaining some popularity that despite what you might think our actions can impact parts of the universe so far away that we could never causally interact with them or we might be able to in fact affect parallel universes that we can't causally interact with or maybe even we could do actions that might be able to influence what happened in the past which uh i have to to me really does feel like <laughs> that's uh that's really out there um you actually yeah you open uh, an essay on this with this beautiful pithy paragraph um i think that you can control events you have no causal interaction with including events in the past and that this is a wild and disorienting fact with uncertain but possibly significant implications this post attempts to impart such disorientation uh yeah can, can you explain the, the the basic setup here sure so i think the the sense in which i think you can control things that you don't causally interact with it's a specific sense of control. Um, and and it's specifically, it's not cause. It's not, we're not impacting in the sense of causation. You're impacting in the sense of you should sort of think of your actions as influencing what happens over there. And that that's sort of for all intents and purposes, a kind of reasonable way to make decisions and an important and makes an important difference. And, the, and the, a way to bring that out, that the experiment that convinces me most is, so you imagine that you are a deterministic AI system and you only care about money for yourself. So you're, you're selfish. And there's also a copy of you, a, a perfect copy, and you've both been sent, uh, you know, and it's, and you've both been separated very far away. Maybe you're on spaceships flying in opposite directions or something like that. And you're both going to face the exact same inputs. So you're deterministic. So the only way you're going to make a different choice is if the computer's malfunction or something like that. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to see the exact same environment. And in the environment, you have the option of taking $1,000 for yourself. So we'll call that defecting. 
or sending, giving a million dollars to the other guy. Um, we'll call that cooperating. So this, this structure is, is similar to a, a prisoner's dilemma. And so, you know, you're going to make your choice and then later you're going to rendezvous. So what, what should you do? Well, so one, here's an argument that I don't find convincing, but that I think would be the argument offered by someone who, who thinks you can only kind of control what you can cause. Uh, and so the argument would be something like, well, you know, your choice doesn't cause that guy's choice. He's far away. Maybe he's light years away. So you should treat his choice as fixed. Um, you know, and then whatever he chooses, you get more money if you defect. So, you know, if he defects, then, you know, you'll, you'll get nothing by cooperating and a thousand dollars by defecting. If he sends the money to you, then you'll get a million point one by defecting and a million by cooperating. So no matter what, it's better to defect. Um, and so you should defect. But I think that's wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is that you are going to make the same choice. Um, you're deterministic systems. And so whatever you do, he's going to do it too. And in fact, in this particular case, and we can talk about looser versions where it's the inputs aren't exactly identical, the, the connection between you two is so tight that you just literally, like if you want to write something on your whiteboard, he's going to write that too. You can just cause, like if you want him to write on his whiteboard, you know, hello, this is a message from your copy or something like that. You can just write it on your own whiteboard. And then when you guys rendezvous, his whiteboard will say the thing that you wrote. And so you can sit there going like, what do I want? You know, you really can control what he writes. You know, if you want to draw like a, a particular kitten, if you want to like scribble in a certain way, he's going to do that exact same thing, even though he's far away and you're not, you're not in causal interaction with him. Um, and so I, I, to me, I think it just, there's just this form, there's a weird form of control you have over what he does that we just need to recognize. And I think that's relevant to your decision in the sense that if you start reaching for the defect button, you should really, like, you should be like, okay, what button is he reaching to right now? He's reaching, you, as you move your arm, his arm is moving with you. And so you reach the defect, he's about to defect. If you go to cooperate, so you can basically be like, what, what button do I want him to press? Right? And I could just press it yourself and he'll press it. Um, and so to me, it feels like pretty easy, you know, press the send myself a million dollars button. And, but I think that's, this is really weird. I think it's like, this is a really different type of way of thinking about your influence on the world um, and with some implications. So that's, that's like the case that, that convinces me most. Yeah, it's the case that convinces me that there's something uh, real here that deserves further investigation. Because, I mean, in the, in the, so in the standard prisoner's dilemma, you uh, use the reasoning that you, that you were saying, where you're like, well, no matter what they do, it's better if I take the money for myself. But I just, that feels just completely wrong here. You know that there's, there's only two options. You send them a million and they send you a million, or you keep 1,000 and they keep 1,000. Like the idea that you can have a thing where you press one button and they press the other one, it doesn't make any sense because you're this deterministic system that does exactly the same thing in the, in the two locations because you're getting exactly the same inputs. And so it kind of seems to break the standard causal decision theory, the standard causal analysis that we uh, would use. But then as you're saying it, we can't say that you're causing them to do this in the normal sense because we normally think of causation as occurring in this natural way where you know you move an object or you send out some energy and then it travels in the intervening space and then hits them and that's not happening but nonetheless what you do changes what they will have done or what they are doing in a way that is decision relevant to you it's it's that it, that it and that that fact should change what you do <laughs> yeah um hey listeners rob here when I planned out this episode, I, I hoped that we'd be able to do this section on decision theory without 
properly going back and explaining fully what decision theory is and what causal decision theory is and evidential decision theory and the main kind of thought experiments that motivate this whole area of philosophy. I thought maybe we could skip over that because uh, we just basically didn't have time. But it turned out, listening back on it, I think there's a big risk that people are going to get confused uh, given that we skipped over so much of the kind of introductory material that we would have gone over if we had set aside more time for it. So I am going to fix that here and talk for five or 10 minutes about you know, introducing this, this whole topic so that you're all more likely to be able to follow uh, what comes next. If you feel like you're pretty across these issues and don't need an introduction, uh, then feel free to skip to the next chapter to get back to the conversation. Okay, so decision theory is this field in philosophy that is basically the study of how a rational agent would decide what to do. And the most normal, the most natural, the most basic, perhaps for most of us, the default answer to how, you know, how a rational agent would make decisions is what philosophers called causal decision theory, or CDT. And CDT says that when a rational agent is confronted with a set of possible actions, they should select the action which causes the best outcome in expectation. So just to give a super simple example, you know, suppose you're deciding whether to take an umbrella when you leave the house uh, and you look at the weather forecast and it says that there's an 80% chance of rain. Using causal decision theory, you would think, well, if I take an umbrella, then that will cause me to not get wet. If I don't take an umbrella, then I might get wet. That would be the, the causal outcome. So in this situation, uh, it would be taking the umbrella. Uh, it seems to be the, the better outcome. Uh, so CDT suggests that you should take, take the umbrella with you uh, if, it, if it might rain. So very natural. It's probably what most of us are thinking, the way that most of us are thinking uh, most of the time. And it would, probably wouldn't occur to us until we did a bit of philosophy that there's even that, that, that is really a particular theory and that there might be counterexamples to it. I'm going to quickly go through three possible counterexamples uh, to CDT uh, here and explain the, the main alternative that people uh, potentially reach for, which is evidential decision theory or EDT. So here's a simple uh, setup. Uh, the thought experiment here is called the psychopath button. So Paul is debating whether to press the kill all psychopaths button. It would, he thinks, be much better to live in a world that had no psychopaths. Unfortunately. Paul is quite confident that only a psychopath would press such a button. And Paul very strongly prefers uh, living in a world with psychopaths to dying. So should Paul press the button then to kill all psychopaths? Causal decision theory would say that he should press the button because pressing the button doesn't cause him to be or to become a psychopath. So so long as Paul currently thinks that he's not a psychopath, then he's, he's in the clear. He can press the button to kill all psychopaths, uh, make the world better from his point of view, and there's no risk that he'll be killed uh, in, the, in, in the process because um, he thinks that, he, that he's not a psychopath. But almost everyone thinks that there's something, or like many people think that there's something off about this because surely pressing the button, as Paul suspects, is evidence that he is a psychopath because he thinks that only a psychopath would be willing to press the button. So this is a case where it seems like causal decision theory is leading to the to the wrong answer, that it's fine for Paul to, to, to press the button, that he doesn't have to worry about being killed if he does so. Here's another thought experiment that is a little bit uh, more famous in which uh, if you start reading about this topic, you'll, uh, you'll encounter again and again. It's called uh, Newcomb's Paradox. Here, here it is in a sort of simplified form. So imagine that there's a game show where you're presented with two boxes, box A and box B. 
Box A is transparent and always contains $1,000. Whereas box B is opaque and it will either be empty or it's going to contain $1 million. Now on this game show, the game show host, who has a near perfect track record of predicting contestants' choices, that host has already made a prediction about what you're going to do. If the host predicted that you would take the money from both boxes, then they left box B empty. On the other hand, if the host predicted that you will only take box B, then they put $1 million inside it. So now you're on the stage on this game show and you have two choices. Take both boxes, take the money from both boxes, box A and box B, or only take box B. Now, if you stop and think about it, from a causal decision theory perspective, you should take both boxes because your decision now won't change what's in the boxes. They've already been filled based on the host's prediction. You could say that the host predicted this a very long time ago, weeks ago, uh, and, and, they, and they're definitely not going to fiddle with what's in them. And they're not going to let you on the game show ever again, say. So given that, you might as well take the definite $1,000 from box A, along with whatever is in box B. Uh, maybe it's a million dollars, maybe it's nothing. But either way, from a causal decision theory point of view, you're better off taking both boxes. But there is an alternative approach that one could take. And one alternative that's been proposed is evidential decision theory. And evidential decision theory says that when a rational agent is confronted with a set of possible actions, they should select the action with the highest news value. That is to say, the action which would be indicative of the best outcome in expectation if they receive the news that that's the decision that they had uh, taken. In other words, uh, it recommends to do what you would most want to learn that you're going to do or had done. And from an evidential decision theory perspective, you should only take box B. That's because your decision to take only box B is evidence that the host predicted that, predicted that you would only take box B, and therefore they put $1 million in it. So rather than go home with $1,000 in in box A, instead, you're going to go home with $1 million, uh, the $1 million that was put in box B because the host predicted that you would only take box B. Now, Even though your choice doesn't causally affect the contents of the boxes, it's correlated. Your choice to take only box B is correlated with a higher reward. Now, philosophers and I think just uh, people in general who encounter this thought experiment are kind of split, as we're going to talk about, Joe and I, uh, in a minute. They're kind of split between thinking that uh, one boxing is the right decision or that two boxing is, is the right decision. It's just, uh, it brings up different, in, uh, it brings up <laughs> conflicting uh, intuitions uh, in, in, in both directions. Here's another thought experiment that's often used to suggest that there's something wrong with causal decision theory and that maybe we should use evidential decision theory or something else instead. Uh, this one is called the smoking lesion problem. Here's the setup. Suppose that there's a type of lesion that causes both a strong desire to smoke and lung cancer. So smoking itself in this situation doesn't cause lung cancer. But the presence of the lesion uh, leads to both the desire to smoke and an increased risk of lung cancer. So people who smoke are more likely to get lung cancer, but only because they're more likely to have this lesion that gives them the desire to smoke. Now, imagine in this situation you're deciding whether or not to smoke. From a causal decision theory perspective, you might decide to smoke. After all, in this scenario, smoking doesn't cause lung cancer. And if you have the lesion, you're going to be at risk of lung cancer whether you decide to smoke or not. But from an evidential decision theory perspective, you might prefer to choose not to smoke. 
That's because if you choose to smoke, that's good evidence that you have this lesion, which would mean that you're much more likely to get lung cancer. So in this scenario, to many people, and I think to me, evidential decision theory here seems to give more reasonable advice, that is uh, not to smoke, because your decision to smoke is correlated with a higher risk of lung cancer and a shorter life expectancy, even though it doesn't directly cause that lower life expectancy. So some people use this case, uh, the smoking lesion, to argue in favor of evidential decision theory over causal decision theory. On top of those two, people have come up with other decision theories uh, in more recent years to try to get out the seeming right answers in all of those cases, as well as to deal with additional perverse outcomes in in other sorts of thought experiments. Two of those are called functional decision theory and updateless decision theory. But I haven't read about either of those, so I can't can't really say what, what they're about. But you could Google them if you're really interested. Now, uh, one thing that's going to come up a little later uh, in the conversation with Joe is that most people who think that causal decision theory, that, that, that CDT, is in some sense the correct philosophical decision theory. It's correct from some philosophical point of view. They're going to want to commit themselves to follow a different strategy in particular cases and perhaps in quite a lot of cases. So you could imagine a philosopher who is about to go on the game show that we were talking about earlier with, with Newcomb's problem where they put a lot of money in box B, if and only if they predict that you'll choose to only take the money in box B uh, and leave box A there. That philosopher, let's say, uh, might think that causal decision theory is correct. But before they go on the game show, they would love to somehow change how they make decisions so that they, in practice, would only take box B. uh, Because then they can can expect that there'll be $1 million in there. Now, Humans can't easily just look inside their minds and change how they make decisions in this way by sort of reprogramming themselves. But yeah, it is a little bit strange that causal decision theorists would say that in a situation like this and, you know, quite a lot of other situations that someone could, uh, you know, a lot of other hypothetical situations that people have dreamed up, that they should try to make themselves not follow causal decision theory and instead follow evidential decision theory or a different approach instead. Okay, that's been a long interjection. Um, I hope it's been interesting or uh, at least amusing. Uh, and now we can get uh, back to the interview. It's really out there. I suppose, so a skeptic might respond saying, look, sure, this is all well and good if you're a deterministic robot who can be perfectly copied and, and moved about. But humans aren't like that. So this actually has kind of limited relevance to, to the real world or at least to, to us. Uh, what, would you, what would you say to that? So a few things. First, I think like kind of, any amount of magic is weird, right? Like if if someone's sort of like, oh, like I was I was a causal decision theorist, like it sort of feels like the argument for like you can only affect things that uh, you cause should just kind of apply universally. It shouldn't be like, oh, well, there's a few cases where you can affect things you don't cause. Or, sure, uh, not robots, but <laughs> yeah. So I, I think like even if it, if this consideration only applies in this sort of case, I'm kind of like, well, we should be sitting up straight. Like there's something weird about that. But I also just don't, um, I don't think that. So uh, to start to get a grip on this, you know, maybe we can start by weakening the case where you imagine, uh, okay, the inputs are subtly different. Like let's say you're wearing a green hat um, and he's wearing a red hat, right? And you see this. At some point people see their hats. Okay, but there's still, you're still really similar, And so an outside observer, if let's say an outside observer learned that you cooperated, that observer is going to update very hard about what he did. And because you're so similar, it's just like a lot of evidence about what he's going to do if you cooperated. And so, you know, I think that the same sort of argument persists. Basically, you should make that update too. You should be incorporating that information um, into your decision. So, you know, 
if you cooperate, then you should be expecting him to cooperate. Even though he's seeing slightly different inputs, you're still just so similar. You probably did the same thing. You probably thought about this this stuff in the same way. It's not as though that the the kind of color of the hat makes much difference to, to kind of how you treat this. Um, I mean, you could be that type of person, but that's like, we have to argue that type of person and you kind of get to decide. And so I think I think the case is going to work in a very similar way as long as just like your actions are evidence about what he does. And I think that the basic problem with causal decision theory, I think if you if which I think is important to see clearly is causal decision theory, the sort of whole thing that it does is ignore that sort of evidence. So it sort of treats it, it assigns a fixed probability to him cooperating or defecting and then treats that as independent of what you do. And I think and it's just not independent. Uh, and so I think there's it, causal decision theory or CDT. It's just using the wrong probabilities it's sort of it's acting with expected utilities that you shouldn't actually expect and i think that's just kind of silly when when you look at it clearly yeah yeah just um to clarify for listeners causal decision theory is this kind of answer to how you should make decisions in this kind of situation uh, i'm not sure that i could uh, exactly technically define it but it's the it's the one that says you should think about what causal impacts you're having on things and set aside uh, kind of other considerations and so it follows this sort of reasoning that says you know whatever the other person whatever the other copy is going to do that just just hold that fixed and then decide what you should do given uh and then and then you can just choose the one that is better no, no matter what they choose and then there's other various other um, approaches here that probably we won't get into in in detail that various different ways try to take into account what you might learn from your own actions or what things you might what process you might have wished uh, to commit to uh, to using uh, in the in, in various different cases I guess as you're saying it, it kind of it seems the answer seems relatively obvious at least to the two of us in the case where it's your exact copy who is a deterministic and sees the exact same evidence. But it doesn't, it's not as if this goes away if you start making minor changes. Like, you know, the room is slightly different, the temperature is a little bit different, you're wearing a different hat. As long as your decision is very correlated with what they're going to choose, such that you're learning a lot about what they will probably have chosen from what you do, then this still bites to some extent. So it kind of, it breaks or, or it weakens gradually uh, over time as the situations become more and more distinct. And so that that's how it can potentially, you know, even before we, we have any deterministic AI systems or whatever, I, it, it can still be relevant to humans because kind of we're in a bit of that situation. Like what if you have just your best friend is the other one uh, out there and you, you tend to agree all the time. You like have very similar interests. You tend to make the same decisions. You want to do the same stuff. Then aren't you learning something about what they will probably have chosen in this case from, from what you do because you so often agree? <laughs> uh, but then it suggests that this like spooky thing this spooky, crazy thing is happening all the time to us. Now, do you want to take it from there? Sure. So I do want to be cautious in how far we extend these things to real world cases, because I actually think it gets complicated. In particular, the more that your decision making is driven by explicit thinking about this sort of decision theoretic dynamic, that can be itself a source of decorrelation with other people. So if the other people aren't thinking in this way, like if, you're, if your friend never thinks about decision theory, for example, then it's going to be at least quite a bit less clear how correlated your decision making is with his. And I think that's, that's important for a bunch of human cases. I also think in, in many human cases, we just have much stronger forms of evidence about what to expect other people to do. So this is like quite a weak effect. And I think, uh, so I think we should be quite cautious in extrapolating to like everyday cases. It's like, it's a substantially open question how far you want to, you want to bring these into, into more real world cases like on earth and, and with people, you know, um, I just, I just want to say that because I think it's, I think it's, it is important and, and people can misapply this stuff and kind of 
get out there and and sort of think of themselves as having more of this sort of control than they do. And I think and I think a reasonable way to to test that is just to ask yourself like really how much would you would you update about what the other person does um, on the basis of your doing this thing for this reason? And I think it's often not actually very much. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's, yeah, in, in normal cases, I suppose in the robot case, you imagine that they've just woken up and kind of this is the only thing that they're learning. It's almost the only information they have. And it's also just incredibly dispositive evidence because it's incredibly persuasive evidence because they're identical. Whereas in a normal case, you already know a lot about your friend and they're different from you, <laughs> which might help to explain why we don't have this intuition uh, about like what things we can affect. We, we, our intuitions most of the time is about this causal thing that we think the only way we can change things is to influence them like physically somehow. And this kind of influence feels very spooky and, and counterintuitive until you like really pin it down in a case where you can't get away from it. Yeah, are there any other cases that are worth uh, like, like what's a, what's another thought experiment here that might help us to understand this better? So the classic thought experiment that people often focus on, though I I, I don't think it's the most dispositive, is this case called Newcomb's problem, where Omega is this. Uh, kind of super intelligent predictor of your actions and omega puts you in the situation where you face two boxes one of them is opaque one of them is transparent the transparent box has a thousand dollars the opaque box has either a million dollars or nothing and omega puts a million dollars in the box if omega predicts that you will take only the opaque box and leave the thousand dollars alone um, even though you can see it right there and omega puts nothing in the opaque box if Omega predicts that you will take both boxes. And so, you know, the same sort of argument arises for the CDT. For, for CDT, you know, the thought is, look, like, you can't change what's in the boxes. The boxes are already fixed. Omega already made uh, her prediction. And so, you know, and no matter what, you'll get more money if you take the thousand. Um, you know, if you could ask, if there was some dude over there who could see the boxes and you're like, hey, which you know, what, what choice will, will see what's in the boxes. And you're like, what, what choice will give me more money? You don't even need to ask. Cause you know, it's always <laughs> just take the extra thousand, but I, I think you should, you should one box in this case, because I think, um, if you one box, then it will have been the case that Omega predicted that you one boxed because Omega is sort of always right about the predictions. And so there will be the million. And I think a way to pump this intuition for me that matters is, is, is imagining doing this case just over and over and over with monopoly money. So, you know, each time I just like, I, I try taking two boxes and I notice up, oh, opaque box is empty. And I, you know, I take one box, opaque box is full. I do this over and over. I try doing like intricate mental gymnastics. I do like a somersault and then I take the boxes, you know, I, I flip a coin and take the box. Well, flipping a coin, Omega has to be really, really good. So we can talk about that. But it, you know, in the case, if Omega is like sufficiently good, then at predicting you your choice, at predicting your choice, then just like every time, I think what you eventually will learn is that you effectively have a type of magical power. Like I can just, you know, wave my arms over the opaque box and say, Shazam, I hereby declare that this box shall be full with a million. And then thus, as I one box, it is so. And or if I can be like, okay, I Shazam, I declare that the box shall be empty. And like thus, as I two box, it is so. And I think eventually you just get it in your bones such that when you finally face the real money, I guess I expect this feeling of like, I kind of, I've, I know this one. I've seen this before. I kind of know what's going to happen um, at some more visceral expectation level if I one box um, or two box and, and I know which one leaves me rich. So uh, that's another thought experiment that I use. I think that case is, is complicated and, and I discuss it in the essay, but I find that a sort of an additionally compelling intuition. Yeah, so this one is a bit more complicated and more controversial. People uh, disagree a lot about what they think that they would do or what they think it's, it's reasonable to do. Some people, I mean, because you can see the intuition either way. However much money is in the boxes, I get more by taking both, <laughs> taking the money from both of them rather than just one of them. 
Uh, and so some people have that have that feeling very strongly. And then other people think, yeah, but if I'm the kind of person who will take the one box, then there'll probably be a million dollars in the in the in the, in the opaque box, and so that is the better choice because I will get more. <laughs> um, and then it's kind of how do you resolve this tension between the two? And I suppose I think many listeners might have this intuition that something weird is going on with this case. That this uh, okay now you've got this weird being, Amiga. Uh, it seems like you're smuggling in something spooky about this character who can just always predict your actions somehow uh, incredibly well, uh, even even if they uh, were far further in, in the past. And I think there's a bunch of you know, discussion about whether that is introducing something that should make us suspicious about, about the whole case. Yeah, okay, well, let's go back to the prisoner's uh, dilemma case can you talk about yeah what sort of implications might that have from uh like doing good perspective if you're concerned about how the whole world goes then how might this affect what we ought to do so i think just at at a basic level i just it seems like a sufficiently weird form of control that it seems worth like noticing and, and understanding prior to jumping too hard into kind of practical implications the practical implication that's most salient to me though that's quite strange is less to do with how do these sorts of ideas play in to interactions between uh, humans right now on Earth, and more to do with the sense in which they may expand the scope of what we can affect more broadly. So in particular, if you live in a, in a very large universe, as I think is like a live cosmological hypothesis, or alternatively, if there are sort of other quantum branches that are kind of real in the way that the kind of many worlds theory of quantum mechanics suggests, then normally we would think those parts of the universe and parts of reality are sort of beyond the scope of what we can control. And so we can kind of effectively ignore them. Whereas if you take this a causal stuff more seriously, then suddenly it becomes a more of an open question, whether there are implications for what we do for what we should expect things to be like in other quantum branches or other parts of the universe. And I think it's, it's possible that there are important ways that that could be decision relevant, though I think we should move very, very cautiously in kind of actually acting on that. I think it's more like a possible line of inquiry to, to pursue. Yeah. I guess one conclusion that might come from this is it seems to give you an extra reason to act with integrity or to act uh, be, to be a trustworthy person and kind of to keep your promises because – in, in so doing, you gain evidence about the niceness and the reliability of other people in cases where you don't really know how reliable they are. At least in as much as you think that the decision-making procedure that you use to decide uh, you know, whether to stab someone in the back or not <laughs> is similar to the decision procedure that other people are using to make similar decisions about you or you know, other, other people who you care about, then maybe you really do gain some knowledge about how good beings are how good humans are how good agents are in the universe in general by introspecting and thinking well how nice am i (laughs) uh and so perhaps that's like one of the influences that we could have that might be most important would be to just be really good trustworthy nice cooperative being in the interest that uh that is going to demonstrate that that is how beings in the universe tend to be and that's going to lead to a a good outcome is is that kind of uh, the the, uh, a thrust that people have run with I think we want to move slowly. I mean, you know, it can it can be easy to grab these ideas and like read onto them whatever we sort of hoped to say anyway. And you know, these ideas do conjure a bunch of stuff in the vicinity of cooperation and integrity and and ways of combating kind of destructive dynamics between more naively consequentialist agents and stuff like that. And I I do think that's real, but I also think sometimes the kind of work of really working it out isn't isn't done. That said, I I, I basically 
especially with respect to the kind of the broader universe, I do think, you know, there's stuff here that seems to me possibly relevant in the sense that, you know, if we, if humanity cooperates and kind of is nice to, is like nice in various ways to kind of other value systems or finds kind of pluralistic solutions to our own problems and, and just in general, I do think the amount of cooperation and niceness that we succeed at bringing to our own predicament on Earth is not just helpful for us. It's also evidence about kind of the nature of the universe as a whole. And it would be some amount of evidence about some some other places in the universe. How well do they do? How much cooperation do they do? How do people who care about what we care about get treated? You know, that's it's like an early stage thought. I think there's a lot to be done to work that out. And and but I think it does. It's at least a possible implication that we should be in some sense thinking about when we act, what does this do to my sense of like how things are as a whole in everywhere, not just, you know, in my kind of local environment. And maybe that our niceness makes or uh, is evidence about that. Yeah, I suppose uh, another possibly more intuitive way of putting it is, you know, imagine that you that we learned that, you know, humanity managed to resolve its disagreements and conflicts and, you know, avoid a nuclear war, and it kind of grows up as a species, uh, you know, without any big calamities. Is that a reason to think that other similar civilizations that might arise elsewhere in the universe at other times and other places, that they will also manage to do that and avoid destroying themselves or avoid producing some bad outcome? And it seems like the answer is kind of yes, it's at least some evidence for that, especially given how little we know about them. And then, and then, and then the additional bit is like, and that's a reason to do it, right? <laughs> because uh, we'll learn that the universe is, is better. And, and that, that feels a little bit stranger, but it does seem like it's kind of implied by the cooperation uh, thought experiment. Uh, like a kind of a fuzzy bit here is we're saying, you know, well, we think that other agents' behavior is correlated with our own and, you know, they're using a correlated, a similar decision procedure to decide what to do. And we're like, but how much? Like, what, what, can we measure this? Um, uh, it feels like there's some work being done there when we're not being very precise. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do in really making out that thought. Um, and I've thought most just about the basic decision theory thing. And and I want to be clear that I don't have a worked out overall decision theory even. And, and different decision theories will understand the, the prisoner's dilemma case and the Newcomb's case in different ways. There's a bunch of additional conversation to be had, even about the kind of very theoretical aspect of this. But I am pretty convinced just that like you should cooperate in that twin prisoner's dilemma case. Like I, I think that's a pretty <laughs> strong datum. And so we, we're going to want, I think, a decision theory that validates that. And I think that is suggestive that there's at least the potential for our influence to extend much more broadly than we're used to, to imagining. Yeah, this might be a good moment to bring in uh, another thought experiment in this uh, vicinity, which is the, um, the, the, the stranded hitchhiker case, the, the hitchhiker in the, in the, in the desert. Um, yeah, can, can you explain that one? Sure. So the idea here is you are a hiker in the desert, you're dying of thirst, and you're going to uh, you need to make it to the city, otherwise otherwise you're a goner. And a selfish man comes along in his car, and he will take you to the city, but only if he predicts that when you get to the city, you will, uh, you'll go to an ATM and give him $10,000. And he's an extremely accurate predictor. He's a sort of Omega-like character. And But once you get to the city, he will be powerless to kind of make you pay. You'll just be able to run run away and get, get your water, and you won't, you won't need to pay him. The problem here is that once you get to the city then it's this case where it's sort of, you know the outcomes. And if you pay, then you'll be less $10,000 and you'll live. And if you don't pay, then uh, you'll, you'll have more $10,000 more and you'll live. So uh, it's very hard to get a decision theory that says that you should, you should pay in the city if you're just sort of assessing, um, you know, ah, what's like the guaranteed payoffs in these, in these cases. But 
that's the type of thinking that gets you left in the desert because he predicts that that's the decision you're going to make in the city. And so he doesn't take you to the city until you die. And so there are decision theories that are sort of designed for this sort of situation in particular. And basically what they're doing is specifically attention to what is the policy you would have wanted to commit to from some kind of prior epistemic perspective, um, in this case, from the desert, and then executing that policy later, even when it sort of wouldn't have otherwise made sense. And so this type of thing is different from the twin prisoners dilemma in various ways. In particular, once you're in the city, you know the outcomes, uh, whereas in the twin prisoners dilemma, you're sort of changing your evidence about the outcomes. But uh, they're kind of structurally similar also in other ways. And I think they bring in additional interesting questions. Um, and I do think I do think it's very plausible that the thing to do is to pay once you're in the city. And I think that's that's a, a, an additionally important datum about how we should be thinking. Yeah. So yeah, so, so I guess on, the, on this face, this does feel like a, a different case. But the thing that it has in common is that it's highlighting another problem with just following our standard causal analysis of what to do. Because the causal analysis says, well, let's, let's, you know, let's start at the end and work backwards. So once we're in the city, we shouldn't pay because we'd rather just keep the money. Okay, so that's our decision at that point. And then let's work backwards. And then it's like, okay, so now I should die in the desert. <laughs> so, but the causal analysis... <laughs> or you will die. Yeah. <laughs> we will die, yeah. So, so it's another case where a kind of causal analysis of how to make decisions seems to be producing the wrong answer, or at least a, a questionable answer. And so maybe that should cause us to reassess how, you know, what things we think ourselves as, as being able to influence with our, with our decisions or, or with the way that we make decisions. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a little harder in this case to interpret the sense of influence well. Like you can end up saying, OK, I'm in the city, but if I don't pay, then it won't be the case that I'm in the city. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, you know, I'll have died. I'll have died, you know, a few hours ago. And then, and it could feel a little like, huh, like that's a weirder thing than saying, ah, like if I cooperate, then he will cooperate. If I defect, he'll defect. But I do think there's something intuitive here. I mean, you know, and a way of bringing that out is, you know, in the desert, if you had this causal decision theory, you, you would want to do something like strap a bomb to your arm that will explode once you're in the city if you don't pay, um, thereby making it the case that it will be uh, rational for you in the city to pay. And so you'll, he will, he'll predict that you pay. But, you know, what if you don't have a bomb? Uh, what if you don't know how to make bombs? You know, do you need, do you really need a bomb? What if you just, why not just skip all this stuff with the bomb and just pay in the city? Uh, you know, it's, it, there's something, there's something weird about kind of needing this weird commitment device. Why not just learn that oh so valuable art of actually making and actually keeping commitments? And I think that's, to me, that's more of the lesson of this case, that sort of commitments, being able to keep commitments is like a real and important thing. And, and that it's something that kind of naive decision theories struggle with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I find that to be a really funny example where you're thinking, well, obviously, if I had a bomb that could pre-commit me to wanting to pay in the city, then I should. But, you know, if any of if I'm missing any of the pieces of the bomb, then I shouldn't pay. <laughs> then, then, then I won't. And instead, I should die in the desert. It feels like something's gone wrong there. And you're just like, well, but couldn't I do the same thing without the bomb? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think this case is a lot more intuitive because it brings in other intuitions that we have about the importance of, you know, maintaining a good reputation and sticking with our commitments. Um, and I suppose you can you can make the case stranger by saying, well, what if it's a robot that looks for lost people out in uh, in in the desert, and actually it's the robot is going to break or it's going to kind of uh, it, it's it's going to explode or something before you even decide whether to go to the ATM or not. So uh, the being that with which which you've kind of made some agreement is not even going to exist anymore. 
But still, in that case, it feels like probably you should go to the ATM. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we can bring, you know, the robot says to burn the money in the street. You know, it's like the, <laughs> that's and it's already and the robot has already disintegrated by the time you're you're there. I still think you should pay. And I, but I think it's it's worth making that distinction because it otherwise we're triggering a bunch of extra stuff about promise keeping and, and like the interests of the guy and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, I guess going going back to the to the stranger case where you're thinking that you, this kind of spooky action at a distance that you have with other beings that uh, make decisions using similar methods to what you do. Yeah, do you think is, is this idea that this is important or that this maybe should influence how we think about the effects that we have on the world? Is that gaining any acceptance within philosophy? I know this this idea has been bouncing around for a couple of decades now, and it doesn't seem to be going away. If anything, it seems to be. At least like people haven't managed to really knock it down. It's still going. What's what's the situation? Well, I think I don't have a, you know, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the decision theory community as a whole. <laughs> and in fact, I think in academic philosophy, I think this view is still probably the minority that that uh, I think kind of standard causal decision theory tends to be more popular in academic philosophy. And then um, there's a sort of kind of a d- different set of folks. I live in the Bay Area. I think it's more popular in the Bay Area for some reason. Um, or I mean, actually, there, there is a reason. Sort of various various people in the Bay Area have done work on this topic. And particularly, the, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute has done work on this topic that influenced my thinking and I think has influenced some of the kind of uh, culture around this more broadly. Yeah. Do you think this idea, uh, what, what do you think uh, is the prognosis? Do you think, uh, you know, if we come back in 20 years time, do you think this will be more widely understood or be regarded as more important than it is today? I think plausibly, though, I think it's hard to say exactly. And, you know, the winds of academic opinion don't always track what, um, what you know, what I think is right. Well, so one thing is that in principle, everyone agrees that if you're a causal decision theorist, you should self-modify to stop being a causal decision theorist kind of immediately. And in practice, it doesn't seem like the causal decision theorists sort of even try this. Obviously, it's not clear what sort of self-modification involves. But, you know, ahead of time, like if, if you're if you're here now, you want to like become the type of person who pays in the city. And if there's like a button to do that, then you should do that. And same with like Newcomb's problem. Before before Omega makes the prediction about you, you want to become the type of person who one boxes. And so in principle, you know, all the CDT people should be kind of uh, trying to stop being CDT people. Now, in practice, this doesn't happen for various reasons. Um, but you know, you can imagine uh, in a sort of longer scope of time that this effect actually starts to matter and kind of uh, CDT agents stop being CDT agents, even if they started that way. A different factor that I think I could imagine, I could imagine mattering in, in the longer run is that, you know, I think if we start living in a world where there are a lot of actual digital minds that can be copied and that sort of are more deterministic, then... And that can self-modify. And they can self-modify. You know, this stuff might just become more intuitive. And you know, once you once you if you if there are a bunch of copies of me running around and I start doing stuff and then seeing what they do, I, I might just sort of get it in my bones a bit more. Obviously, this is you know very speculative, and, and exactly what's going to be up with the AIs is, is a whole different story. I do think there's like a way in which this stuff is sort of can make a little more sense if you're thinking of yourself as deterministic and if you're imagining copies of yourself. And, and there, you know, we are uh, maybe building agents that are, are going to be in that sort of situation. Yeah. What's uh, I think yeah you have a really good good post on this for so people who want to learn more. We're going to have to move on, but I think it's called "Can You Influence the Past?" Is is that right? That's right. Uh, or can you control the past? Yeah. Uh, so obviously, uh, we'll link to that, and you have a couple of other yeah really 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 fun thought experiments in there, uh, which which people should go uh, go check out. Okay. The next strange idea from philosophy that uh, I would like to talk about that might perhaps influence uh, what we ought to do is the the problems created for ethics by countenancing the possibility of infinite amounts of, of value. We, we slightly referenced that earlier. And actually, yeah, some, some parts of this were covered on the show not long ago in episode 139, Alan Hayek on uh, puzzles and paradoxes in probability uh, and expected value. 
basically our best understanding of the universe from physics and, and, and cosmology is that, you know, as far as we know, it might well be infinite in size. It has kind of that, that look to it. And that could either be that it kind of continues outward spatially forever in all directions or that it continues going forward in time without ever finishing or that there are an infinite number of parallel worlds uh, to our own or alternative universes with, with different setups. Certainly none, none of these things can be scientifically ruled out at all. But if your theory of ethics involves saying things like, you know, you should increase the amount of happiness in the universe, or you should reduce the amount of injustice and unfairness and inequality, or increase the amount of virtue that people display, then this is going to pose some some problems. Can you explain uh, what, what those are? Sure. So I actually think the problems are substantially more general than just kind of, oh, if you want to say that more of something is good, you get problems. I think they're just problems for kind of everybody all over the place. Basically, anyone who wants to be able to make choices that involve infinities at all is going to run into some really, really serious, serious issues. And plausibly sort of everyone, like we have intuitions about infinite worlds. So like infinite hell, worse than infinite heaven. Like, okay, you know, that's a data point. Cool. Like, so there, there's, uh, it's not as though ethics is totally silent on this stuff. And in fact, we often want our ethical principles to cover a kind of the, a kind of very full range of, of choices we could make. But more importantly, I, I mean, we already are, making choices that have some probability of doing infinite things. So there's, I think, two different central ways this can go. One is kind of causal, where we can be causing infinite things. Now, I think this will require, this is kind of low probability, um, because it requires kind of different science. I think our current current empirical causal picture suggests that our causal influence or our predictable causal influence is made finite by things like entropy and light speed and stuff like that. Um, but could be wrong. Um, you know, maybe in the future we can we can make uh, hypercomputers or, uh, you know, we ba- make baby universes or maybe, you know, um, and also, I don't know, maybe some sort of religion is true. Like, can you really rule it out? Like, ah, this person going to hell, like there's all these churches around, like exactly how unlikely is it? What if God appeared before you? Are you certain that's not going to happen? Anyway, so there's, there's kind of causal stories you can have where you can have causal influence. And then if you get into the acausal stuff that we were talking about earlier, you can also a causally influence uh, an infinite universe. So, you know, if there's there's infinite people and their sort of decisions are sufficiently correlated with yours, then when, th- when you choose to, you know, take a vacation or to donate your money or something, there's there's all these other people who are doing similar things and, and you're having infinite a causal a causal impact. So I also think in practice we have to deal with this with this issue. Problems that come up, um, there are a bunch. I think the classic problems that are most that kind of come forward first, I think are actually not the biggest ones. So the classic, uh, Nick Bostrom has a paper on this where the, the problem he really foregrounds is this idea that in an infinite universe, if you can only do finite things, then you can't make a difference to the, the kind of total amount of that of that thing. So let's say, you know, there's, you're an infinite universe and you, and you help, you save, you save a bunch of lives or you create a bunch of pleasure. You didn't, you, you know, naively the sort of, the finite difference didn't make a difference to the kind of total pleasure in the universe. I don't find this super compelling. I, I think the, there's an answer to this that I find quite resonant, which is just you should you should kind of focus instead on the difference that you made rather than on the uh, the kind of sense in which you changed the universe as a whole. So you know if you save if you save ten lives, you still save ten lives, um, and those people benefited from what you were doing, even if you didn't kind of make the world better, quote unquote. I've never been super into making the world better. For me, it's, it's sort of helping the people, the specific people, and the world. The world is not a moral patient, so I've never been super worried by that one. There's another one that comes up often, which is basically if you are sufficiently kind of unbounded in the amount you care about additional somethings, so, you know, additional lives being saved or additional pleasure or something like that, then you can get obsessed with infinite outcomes. Kind of any probability of making an infinite difference can swamp 
anything finite. And so you can be kind of obsessed with infinities. I think this is, you know, this is an issue, but I think it's it's sort of sufficiently, just that pure obsession is sufficiently continuous with other bullets that other people want to bite in finite contexts, like the idea that, oh, you know, sufficiently small probabilities of sufficiently large finite impacts can still dominate like more guaranteed benefits. The That just saying I'm going to be obsessed with infinities is that in itself is not the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem is like once you try to be obsessed with infinities or once you try to make choices about infinities at all, you just don't know how to do it. Our whole ethics just starts to break as you start to like figure out how to rank infinite worlds, in particular how to choose between lotteries over infinite worlds or infinite outcomes. And then especially if you have to bring in bigger infinities, there's a sort of unending hierarchy of ever larger infinities. If you start having to bring in those, um, I think we should expect all the principles we've currently talked about for handling these cases to break yet again. So I think it's it's actually, it's it's in choosing between infinities that, that the rubber really hits the road. I see. Just to clarify, one uh, one thing there, when you talk about uh, choosing between lotteries over infinite worlds or infinite outcomes, uh, lotteries there is philosophers speak for decision making under uncertainty. Uh, so what would you do if you had, you know, a 20% chance of getting some outcome that has an, an infinity in it, uh, weighing that against a 5% chance of some other uh, other infinity? Yeah, a whole, a whole ethics that doesn't know how to deal with uh, lotteries like that, or, you know, a decision making under uncertainty uh, gambles that include uh, infinities. A boring issue or a standard issue with the infinite case is that you might imagine the universe is infinite. It has an infinite amount of good and an infinite amount of bad in it. And so, you know, you help someone and make their life better, but so you've got an infinite amount of good plus like the finite amount that you added. It's still infinite. Nothing has changed. The the aggregate is still the same. But uh, you think you know, as bad as that is, uh, that maybe you could overcome that, but there's these these other deeper problems just that you just end up being able to say nothing about how to compare all of these different things that do seem decision relevant that you should be able to compare. And and it's this isn't just an issue for, you know, total utilitarians or someone who cares about the universe as a whole. Anyone who cares about like the state of the, like, what kinds of things exist or happen at all uh, is, is getting bitten by this. Basically, yeah. I think there are ways to try to get around it by having a very, very patchy form of ethics that just is silent about a zillion cases. But yeah, could, could, I mean, if you had an extremely narrow ethics that was like, you know, what you should do is just that you should make sure that you eat enough and it's only about you, not about like any parallel or similar people. And, you know, you should just try to make sure that you eat well. <laughs> and that's the extent of ethics. <laughs> uh, would that yeah. get away from it? Well, it, yes, in some sense. But then you want to, you know, a thing you're doing there is not saying a bunch of things like so, for example, the there are these impossibility results in infinite ethics that I think just they're just these are just results. Like we just know you can't get uh, certain sorts of otherwise attractive principles. You cannot hold these in combination in the context of infinities. What's an example of that? So, for me, the most the most salient example is so consider two principles. The first principle we'll call Pareto, which says if you can help an infinite number of people and do nothing otherwise, and you know you make no one worse off. You should do it. Um, sounds good. Sounds super good. Uh, you know, it sort of seems like you like why why are you not on board with that? So that's the first principle. Uh, and the second principle is called uh, we'll call it anonymity. Um, and basically, it says that if you can kind of map each person in one world to another person uniquely, such that each person is one to one mapped, um, and then they all have the same, they each have the same well being. Um, as their as their pair, 
then those worlds are equally good. So, you know, in somewhat more intuitive terms, it basically means like, it doesn't matter what names, if I, if I give you a distribution of like lives and how good they are, it sort of shouldn't matter which names I drew under which slot. So like Alice at five, Bob at 10 is just as good as Bob at five, Alice at 10. Yeah. That's the intuition. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's a quite attractive kind of impartiality principle. It's sort of like a way of not like randomly caring more about certain agents than others because of their names or something like that. So you might think that that, so those worlds are equally good, but the problem is that you can have worlds where, for example, suppose it's an infinite line of people. And in the first world, every fourth agent has well-being of one and everyone else has well-being of zero. So it's like agent one has one, two, zero, three, zero, four, zero, five has one, et cetera. In the second world, every second agent has well-being of one and everyone else has zero. So agent one has one, agent two has zero, agent three has one. Basically what the second world does is it it just improves the lives of an infinite number of people from zero to one, agent three, agent seven, and so on. And so it's better by the Pareto principle we talked about. But the problem is it's also possible to map each agent um, in the first world to an agent in the second, such that the well-being is the same. And uh, so by the anonymity principle, they're equally good, but they can't be both better and equally good. And so you have a contradiction. And there's a bunch of stuff in the same vein. Yeah. I guess another thread that like might bite more often in decisions that that we might make that was one that we discussed more with Alan Hayek was these issues that, well, what if your actions have some chance of creating an infinite amount of good uh, and there's kind of different probabilities, but like the expected amount of good that you create is kind of always infinite, no matter the probability (laughs) of you creating these outcomes. Uh, And so you have kind of no way to decide between them. And that gets very, these like uncertain outcomes get very confusing and difficult to deal with as well. Definitely. Though I think that one, that's a slightly easier one to get around if you decide you sort of don't value things infinitely. If you have a sort of bounded utility function, then you can avoid that conclusion. Whereas this impossibility results, it's just like, sorry, you, something has to, has to give. Yeah. Are there any other uh, kind of impossibility results or challenging decision cases that uh, you want to mention before we push on? One other one that I, th- I find disturbing and instructive. So th- a, a popular way of trying to, to rank infinite worlds, at least infinite worlds that have the same locations, is to do something like you have an expanding sphere of space-time and you're kind of looking at the uh, utility within that sphere as it expands and then comparing the two worlds based on how the utility compares in the limit um, as the sphere expands. And uh, I think this fits with various of our intuitions. So if you, you imagine, I was like, oh, you know, if there's a world where it's sort of per unit area, it sort of looks like everyone is happy, um, then you might think that's better. A counterexample to at least some versions of this that I've found instructive is if you imagine an infinite line of, of happy planets, utopias, and they're all spread out equally distanced. That's world A. And then in world B, you pull each of those planets an inch closer together, but you add also an arbitrary number of kind of finite, arbitrary finite number of like hellish dystopic planets. And on approaches, you know, that do this sort of comparison of the expanding spheres, the fact that this, the utopia planets are kind of closer together will eventually do enough to make the difference in the kind of comparison between the two spheres, because, you know, the dystopias are only are finite, but the um, eventually they'll outnumber them. Eventually, they'll, out, they'll be outnumbered. And so the these sort of expanding sphere approaches, like the, the second world, 
better. But you know, I was just like, well, no one, no one noticed when you when you when you pulled the planets together. Like that wasn't a morally significant act. But you know what people did notice is when you added all these finite dystopias of like all the people in those dystopias really noticed that. And so I find this result quite bad. And and you get sort of similar things. There's quite a lot of sort of order dependence. Like basically with infinities, it's, you can just rearrange stuff a bunch and like but intuitively rearranging doesn't matter but for infinities rearranging matters quite a lot and that just breaks a lot of stuff hey listeners uh rob here there was a lot there and i'm, I'm just going to clarify uh one thing that uh, joe was talking about basically if you have a universe that is infinite in size then as we're talking about you get uh these great difficulties comparing the goodness of you know uh, one hypothetical universe that is infinite in size with with another one one way that you can try to make those comparisons, though, is to use the, I guess, what uh, here Joe called the expanding sphere approach. So that's one where rather than compare the entire universe A to the entirety of universe B, instead you compare, say, a sphere, uh, you know, a sphere, say, uh, you know, a million kilometers in uh, diameter in universe A, centered on the Earth, say, presumably, and then you compare it with, you know, an equivalent sphere of equal size in world B. And you say, is all of the, is the goodness of everything inside the sphere in world A better or worse or equally good as the goodness and badness of everything that's inside the equivalent sphere in world B? And, and so you can see by limiting the, the scope of the volume, the, 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 everything that you're considering in these universes that technically are infinite in, in skies, now you have a finite a thing that you're comparing in each case. Now, you call it the expanding sphere approach because you can start with uh, you know, a very small sphere and compare it uh, you know, when the sphere only contains the Earth, say. And then you can just keep uh, growing these spheres in world A and world B and keep asking the question, is the sphere in world A at this size better or worse or equally good as the equivalent size sphere in, in world B? And a reasonable idea might be that if for any sized sphere, the one in world A is better than the one in world B, then we can say that even though these universes are infinite in size and even though they might have you know, an unlimited amount of good and bad in both cases, you still want to say that world A is better because any sized sphere in world A is better than um, any equivalently sized sphere in world B, uh, centered in the same location, of course. Now, as Joe was alluding to, this is something that I, I'm not so on top of, but using the expanding sphere approach has the perverse effect that if you move, uh, say, planets that are, are good closer together, then that means that for every given, any given size of sphere, you're going to have more good things contained inside it. And so you would end up saying that, uh, you know, a universe where there's just like less space between planets or less, less space between good things going on is a much better world than one where you know, there's an equal amount of, of goodness in aggregate, but the things are somewhat further apart because, well, just you can imagine if on average, you know, world A contains good things and then you just bring them closer together, then there's more net goodness in a more concentrated world where all of the things are, are pulled closer together. Now, that's a, that's a somewhat uh, counterintuitive uh, effect of the expanding sphere approach. And uh, maybe, maybe it calls into question whether it's such a good solution to this infinite uh, ethics issue. Um, it's not one we're going to go into, into anymore here, but I thought I would just uh, try to give a potted explanation there to help, help make sense of, uh, of, of what Joe was just saying. Okay, uh, back to the episode. 
Yeah. So kind of a, a recurring theme of uh, this chapter of your thesis is, you know, people have suggested, you know, maybe we could fix it this way. And you're like, nah, this is a, you just run into different problems. Yeah, this, this hasn't really fixed it. And then, uh, you know, again, again, and again, and again, and, and I guess also identifying some kind of new challenges that people hadn't noticed before. This is like a little bit more, maybe more on the philosophy, uh, technical math side. But I think as you get, people, people can take it as giving that the, that the situation doesn't look too good. So it sounds like you think we're going to have to do I guess, as philosophers say, uh, substantial violence to common sense in order to come up with ethical theories that can accommodate the possible existence of infinite quantities. I, I think like some other people remain more hopeful about our prospects for getting to a more satisfactory place on infinite ethics than, than you are. I did, what, what might they say about this? Well, I do think people bring sort of different affects to this. And I'm not, I'm not sort of hopeless about it. I, I do think there's progress to be made here. I think we're at an early stage. I do think, like, we can tell that it's not going to be kind of uh, easy, <laughs> or it's not, it's not going to, yeah, or you're not going to kind of get everything you wanted out of it, which is often the case in philosophy. I think often progress in philosophy looks like telling you that you can't have everything that you thought you wanted about about a given thing, and you're going to have to make, you're going to have to choose and sort of rethink your orientation. So one thing is people have different degrees of aversion to various of the bullets. So you know, my arguments in the in the paper are that all of these are like just like really bad, you know, really bad theories. But, you know, you can still bite the bullet. You can bite the bullet, for example, about that planet case. Some people do. Um, and they're just like, yeah, you know, it's like there's the planets are closer. Uh, like, yeah. Or, you know, it's sort of like it's, it's there's it's more dense with value. It's more. Um, Sorry, you're saying. Yeah, I see. You're saying yeah, someone might bite the bullet and say, no, the, the second world is better. You've added a lot of hell worlds to be sure. However, they brought the planets in closer. That's better. <laughs> You can, yeah, I mean, can, yeah, they would put it in some other way. Can you get yourself in the headspace of imagining saying that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to give some intuition for why that's not that bad, like imagine, you know, so naively, imagine a world where it's like one in every million people is sad, um, everyone else is happy, and then reverse it, one in every million people is happy, everyone else is sad. It's quite intuitive, I think, to say, ah, the one the one in every million people being sad is better, because it's like kind of most people are happy. But er, we can just rearrange the people. It's the same. We can just like move the people around to make these worlds the same. And so in the infinite case, in the infinite yeah. case, that's right. It's an infinite, it's infinite line of people in both cases. And so it sort of looks like rearranging, like you might, it's not that bad to say that, um, I guess I do care how they're arranged. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel great. Cause no one noticed when you moved them around. So it's like a little, um, but it, it, there's at least some intuitive support for it in that, you know, naively when you, you kind of like, you like the one in every million being sad instead. You just, just just to pause there for a second for people who haven't done math of infinities, if you haven't just an, an infinite, accountably infinite line of people, then you can basically you just have this result that because there's, let's say you divide them into like a happy group and a, and a sad group, there's an infinite supply of both of these groups. And then you can start pairing them into like one happy person, then 999 sad people, uh, and then just keep going with that forever. Or you can do the reverse uh, and kind of categorize them this other way. And either like they're just different kind of categorizations or just different ways that you've matched, you've paired them up. And yet they both come, both of these can spring from the same well, <laughs> the same, the same supply of, of beings. And that, I mean, this is like one of the threads that leads to very counterintuitive conclusions. Um, yeah. But yeah. Okay. So, so it's, it's going to be it's, it's going to be challenging is kind of the idea, but 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 maybe there are ways that maybe there are like less counterintuitive ways than others of, of dealing with with all of this, and maybe we can we can hope to find that at least. Yeah, I think we can work on it. I think there are people working on it who feel like their approaches are promising in at least certain cases. It looks to me like unlikely that we find some master 
stroke that just takes care of the whole thing. It looks like more like there's a kind of going to be a patchy, like, all right, let's work on this, see where things go. Often principles that people are proposing, you can sort of tell they're not going to apply more broadly. It's going to be incomplete and silent about various cases and stuff like that. Yeah. And especially, I think this thing about the, the larger infinities sounds really rough. For, yeah, for, for listeners who aren't familiar. So there's different, uh, you might just have heard of infinity, but that's just the beginning because uh, there's, there's all kinds of different types of infinity. So there's the infinity you get when you, uh, that's the number of the natural numbers. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, on forever. That's cannibally infinite. Then there's the number of numbers between zero and one. You see, okay, the first one is zero. What's the second one? The thing is, there's no way of uh, like ordering them in some natural way because you could always just add more zeros to the next number and make it even smaller or, or like even an even smaller distance from zero. And so that's uncountably infinite is the, the number of points between zero and one on the, on the real number line. Okay, and then there's more beyond that that I'm not familiar with. But apparently it, it, uh, the chaos continues and kind of at each layer, you can say, well, the, the previous infinity, that's nothing. <laughs> Countably infinite, that's trash. Like what we should really be thinking about is uncountably infinitely uh, good things. Uh, and so the problem is kind of going to recur in this uh, ladder. Uh, is that is that a, one way of putting it? Yeah, I think that's one, one way of putting it, especially for the person who was like, I'm, of course, infinities matter infinitely more than finite things. I will obsess about infinities. It's sort of like, oops, like, okay, what about these bigger infinities? Also, my understanding is it's not, it's not just that there's like some number. It's, there's a, so like every time you take the, the power set of a set, I think you get an uncountable, you get a, you get a bigger infinity out of, out of it. And you can just, so you can just do that unendingly. So there's just like an unending hierarchy of um, bigger and bigger infinities. And so that's rough in terms of, like finding the biggest one or, you know, if, if, you, if you're obsessed with the biggest one, then now I do think there's some, some really interesting questions here about, okay, but exactly how much do we have to incorporate this into our reasoning? So unlike countable infinities where there are like these, you know, somewhat salient cosmological hypotheses where there's lots of people and stuff like that, like I am not aware of, you know, salient hypotheses where there is like one person for every real number or something like that. Um, and still less these like higher order infinities. So you know, you could make these same arguments of like, well, you shouldn't like totally rule them out. What if, do you have like, are you certain God's not going to show up and be like, hey, I, you know, I hereby offer, I could create a large cardinality heaven, like an uncountably uh, large <laughs> heaven. Are you like certain the offer is false? So you can make these same arguments, but but I think you get into these questions of like, okay, how exotic do we need to get in terms of the scenarios that our philosophy covers? Like, do we need to, do we have non-zero credence that like consciousness is constituted by like sourdough bread? Do you have non-zero credence that like, uh, you know, two plus two is five probabilities don't have to add up to a hundred percent. Like it's just like a whole, <laughs> a whole set of hypotheses yeah. that you can get like sufficiently wacky about. And you're like, ah, like your decisions need to cover these. And, and at a certain point you have a feeling like, actually, like, uh, no, that one, I'm just, <laughs> I've had enough. <laughs> I've had enough. And so, so I think there's like, an intuition that that's what we should say about these like larger infinity worlds, and uh, I'm not I'm not sure, but I think I think even if you say that about the larger infinities, I think you, it's like much more compelling to me that you have to you have to deal with these with the just the countable infinite case, and that one's hard enough. Yeah, yeah. You say in your thesis that challenges with infinite ethics uh, represent the death of the utilitarian dream. I think it might actually be in the title, is it like infinite ethics and the utilitarian dream. Can it's it's, it's evocative. Can, can you can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So. I think there's a certain type of person who comes to philosophy and I think encounters ideas, a certain set of kind of simple and kind of otherwise elegant or theoretically attractive ideas, notably kind of total utilitarianism or the, the ideas I most think of as in this cluster, and this is all separate, separable, is sort of total utilitarianism, Bayesianism, expected utility reasoning. That That's the sort of broad, broad cluster. And, and they sort of look at I'm that. I'm sitting right here, Joe. <laughs> 
you can you can address me directly. No, I mean, uh, I, I think I think like 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 many people, I do I do have this impulse. Uh, uh, not not a hundred percent, but yeah, uh, I think people can recognize it. Sorry, ca- carry on. So, and I think and I think a natural response. I remember at one point I was talking with a friend of mine who who used to be a utilitarian about uh, you know uh, one of his views, and I, I started to offer a counterexample to his views, and he just cut me off, and he was just like, Joe, I bite all the bullets. And I was like, oh, oh, like, you don't even need to hear the bullets. He's like, yeah, I, I, it's like, whatever, it, it does it fall out of my view, like, I bite it. Uh, and so I, I think that a certain kind of, kind of person in this in this mindset can can feel like, well, sure, there are bullets I need to bite for this this view. You know, I need to push fat men off, off of bridges. I need to, like, you know, create repugnant conclusions, even with a bunch of hells involved, you know, uh, all this sort of stuff. And But they sort of feel like, I am hardcore. Like I am rigorous. I have theorems to back me up. Like these other people, my thing is simple. These other people's theories, they're like janky and incomplete and, and kind of, you know, made up. It's all epicycles. Hey listeners, uh, Rob here with, with another quick aside. This one's a fun one. Uh, We just used the term epicycles, uh, which philosophers throw around uh, quite a bit, but uh, I think I, I hadn't heard until I started talking to people who'd done philosophy PhDs. The idea of epicycles is basically you're adding lots more complexity to a theory in order to salvage it from cases in which it doesn't match reality or it doesn't match intuition. But really what you want to do is throw out the theory uh, altogether and, and then start again because it's the wrong approach. It goes back to how the ancients used to predict the, the, the motions of planets when they thought that everything was going around the Earth uh, one way or another. Obviously, the planets weren't going around the Earth fundamentally. So how did they manage to explain the apparent motions uh, of, of the planets and them, them coming closer and then, and then going further away? Basically, they modeled the planets traveling around the, the Earth, but they were also traveling in little circles around the circle that they were traveling around the Earth on. They were traveling at the same time on two different circles. Then this allowed them to match up the predictions of that model with their observations of, of where the planets were. So the main big circle that they were traveling on around the Earth was called the deferent or deferent. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And the little circles that they were traveling on around that circle were called epicycles. Uh, I think I think it comes from uh, Greek meaning, uh, yeah, circle moving on another circle. Anyway, so you can see how this term has come to mean adding complexity to a model in order to salvage it when really it's, it's the wrong model to start. What they should have done is realize that the uh, planets were moving in ellipses around the sun rather than adding more and more circles to try to match things up. Interestingly, though, by adding in enough uh, epicycles like this, they were able to make their predictions of the planet's motions match almost exactly uh, their, their observations because they just had enough degrees of freedom in the model to allow them to place the planets in, in any particular place at any particular point in time. That's what can happen when you're, uh, you add a lot of complexity to a model, even if it's mistaken. Okay, that's epicycles. Back to the show. It's all epicycles. It's yeah. all epicycles. It just has this flavor of like, you're just, you're just kind of unwilling to you know just look the truth in the face like make the lizards uh sorry the lizards <laughs> is, my, uh, uh, is a, a version there's a one conclusion that falls out of total utilitarianism is the idea that uh, for any utopia there's a better world with um kind of you know a sufficient number of barely happy lizards plus arbitrary hells um yes. and uh, <laughs> carry on so um so I think that you can get in this narrative like all I need to do is bite the bullets and I always know what I'm getting out of the bullets. I'm getting more expected net pleasure. And I think that can be kind of attractive even to people who aren't in this mode. Like I think even deontologists, it can kind of be in the background as a default that, oh, 
you know, it's like sometimes my theory, you're like doing your deontology and you're adding another epicycle and like, okay, what if the fat man is on a lazy Susan and he's like twirling <laughs> around and the bomb is coming from the left, but you're on the right and, you know, but the the guy earlier was letting rather than killing it. Anyway, yeah. and so, so like... So, so you're, um, adding, you're adding more and more complexity to the theory in order to match your intuitions in more cases, but you're like, oh, this is... Uh. <laughs> That's right. And so you can sort of have that, you know, there's like still a small voice can say like, oh, you know, who doesn't have this type of problem? Like those utilitarians, you know, and like the utilitarians, they have a nice, simple theory. Also, they know how to talk about lotteries, like the deontologists, they like barely talk about lotteries that they barely talk about risk. So there's a whole um, the dream has a lure even outside of people who like go for it, I think. But I think I think infinite ethics just breaks this narrative. I think that uh, and that's part of why I wanted to work on this topic was that I felt like I saw around me some people who were sort of too enamored of this utilitarian dream, who thought it was sort of on better theoretical foundations than I think it is, who felt like it was like more of a default and more of a kind of simple, simple, natural foundation than, than I think it is. And I think what happens is if you if you try to extend this to the infinite, I think you 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 just can't play the same game anymore. Your, your old game was sort of like, well, I'm you realize just- you're going to have to add a lot of complexity to make this work at all. That's right. You're going to have to you're going to have to start giving stuff up. You're going to have to start you're going to be incomplete. You're, you're going to sort of start playing a game that looks more similar to the game you didn't want to play before and more similar to the game that everyone else was playing. And you're not going to be able to say, "Oh, I'm just going to bite whatever bullets my theory says to bite." There just aren't you're going to you're running out of track or the the you know, to the extent you're on a crazy train, the crazy train just sort of runs out of track. There are just like horrific bullets if you want to bite them. Um, but it's just a very different story and you're much more lost. And I think that's just I think that's a, an important source of humility for people who are drawn to this perspective. I think they kind of should be more lost than they were if they were like really, really jazzed about like, I know it's like totally utilitarianism. I'm so hardcore. No one else is like willing to be hardcore. I'm like, I think you should spend some time with infinite ethics and like adjust your confidence in, in the position accordingly. And I think obviously infinite ethics isn't done. We, we might we might well, f- you know, find ways around these problems or like more theory might might come forth. But I think we can already tell on the basis of the sort of impossibility results I talked about before that like whatever comes out of this process, whatever the sort of final best theory of infinite ethics is, if there is such a thing, it's not going to be the simple totalism plus expected utility reasoning thing that people wanted. It's going to be something jankier. It's going to be weirder. And I think we should sort of learn that lesson ahead of time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you can imagine that the the simple story would be like, these people over here, they're, you know, bickering about whether to make seven compromises or 14 compromises. I'm going to make zero compromises. I'm like, I'm special because I've like decided to to deviate like uh, nil uh, in order to accommodate all of these, all of these special cases. But here, like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to make at least three or four compromises. Uh, Zero is just not an option. It's not available. And then you're like, oh, no, actually, maybe we're all kindred spirits in this uh, unpleasant uh, process of trying to figure out how to mesh our uh, finite, strange human intuitions or desires with this extremely odd universe in which we find ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, there's a lot more one could say on this. And yeah, some of the things you say in your thesis chapter, which we'll link to in the show notes, and maybe we'll, we'll stick up the links to some resources for understanding infinities better for people who are, who are interested in that. But pushing on. We, yeah, we've briefly covered three topics where philosophy might feel disorientating, even to people who are kind of familiar with feeling disorientated by by philosophy. You know, maybe they encountered some of it in high school. And like we were saying earlier, you know, they, 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 they found out that we don't really have a strong philosophical grounding for understanding causation or inference and so on. They dealt with that. But like, it just that there's much more. <laughs> we keep finding we keep finding new ones. And I kind of want to talk now about like, 
as human beings, how what do we do in light of all of this? Uh, these these issues that feel strange and and unresolved. I guess both from a emotional point of view and also kind of from a practical one. I mean, I guess you know, we've been having a laugh here because this stuff is like both disorientating and and kind of ent- but entertaining in its own way. But spending a lot of time reading. Uh, your thesis and other stuff that you've written over the last week, I felt myself getting just kind of sad or dismayed. <laughs> so I'm like, it, it forced me to come back and think about issues that I kind of knew were there in the background, but which on a day-to-day basis I put out of my mind for the sake of practicality and and sanity. I mean, we haven't even gone through all of the stuff that you've written about. There's, there's other things that will, that will link to you know, the stuff about anthropics and the doomsday argument that are kind of on a similar scale of of strangeness to what we've talked about. But anyway, yeah, it seems like if you commit to take philosophy seriously and stay on the crazy train rather than just get off once you start to feel uncomfortable, then you can just pile on enough of these potentially crucial issues, these counterintuitive issues that kind of anyone might feel somewhere between confused and, I guess, just depressed or like not know what to do but you, you seem like a cheerful chapter how, how, do, how, how do you handle this personally i mean you're at the you're in the in the coal mine here <laughs> so i think one piece of it for me is that the idea of taking philosophy seriously i think is a kind of rich and subtle one and one, one thing that i think taking philosophy seriously doesn't involve is kind of grabbing hold of any old philosophical idea that kind of comes your way and like kind of freaking out about it necessarily. So I think, I think like holding philosophy, philosophical ideas with the right sort of lightness and maturity is part of doing philosophy well and part of taking philosophy seriously. And that's part of why I, I wanted to flag the kind of possibility of existing simultaneously at different kind of stops on the crazy train or different parts of the wilderness in different ways where, you know, these ideas, you can view some ideas like, ah, that's interesting that, that like, you know, is something worth understanding. I think there's more to learn there without kind of upending your life about it and and a bunch of stuff in that vicinity. I think that's a skill that becomes all the more important when the ideas are kind of especially strange or, or new. So that's, that's just one thing I want to flag. I don't think that the, the sort of difference is like, ah, like take philosophy seriously and like go, you know, get super, super disturbed about this stuff. Um, like it's not, it's not right to be disturbed about an idea that sort of hasn't earned that in terms of like how much you understand it, how solid it is and stuff like that. Maybe like a more concrete case is, does, does thinking a lot about a topic like infinite ethics reduce your motivation to improve the world? Because I feel like, to me, it like feels like it's hollowing out like the goal that I was aiming for to try to improve the world as a whole. And now I'm like, maybe that's just not even possible. And like all good and bad things exist. And there's like, woe is me. <laughs> but it, it seems like, yeah, you don't, you don't quite feel that way about it. Yeah, so I don't, especially for that particular frame, I think I feel pretty comfortable being saying, you know, before when I wanted to save this person's life or when I wanted to help this person or um, the, the the stakes of that particular action haven't changed. Um, in general, I, I, I'm, yeah, so the focus on the moral patient themselves as opposed to the world, I think for me alleviates a, a good amount of that, the specific concern that I can't make a difference to kind of the world as a whole. Another another thing you could think is, okay, actually, I think infinities are kind of where all the action is. This is super, super important, but I don't know how to reason about them, which is um, one lesson you can take away from the piece. Though I don't think the right one. One thing I want to flag there is I do think people should be wary about assuming that they care about infinite stuff infinitely much. Um, I think it's possible, you know, I, I think people should, you know, be honest with themselves. And certainly if, they, if you look at how you act, it might just be that there's some finite stuff that you just care more about than you care about infinite, um, you know, infinite things. And, and that's, that's okay. And that might be something we need to learn. And one of the lessons we learned from some of these, these cases, like the lotteries you talked about with Alan. 
I also think that more generally, to the extent you think, oh, like infinite stuff might matter a lot, we should be wary of cases where we, you know, if you started out caring about X and then there's something else that you think might could be even more important, that doesn't make X any less important. So, you know, if there's one person in front of you who is dying, um, that's still a whole life, that's an entire life. And then if you learn about World War II, it could be that you think sort of working to prevent World War II is more important, but it doesn't, I think, make that person's life any less significant. And I think the same is going to be true of, of other sort of expansions in scale. And I think that can be, um, you know, and that applies in this context too. And then, more generally, I think I think to the extent it's hard to reason about infinities or feel like it sort of like breaks your reasoning about this, I just think we should be really wary of cases where philosophy – it feels like our, our philosophy is breaking, therefore my reasoning is breaking – I think often it's sort of philosophy's fault, um, and like you should be wary. It, it's not that it's not that your reasoning broke or that your your ability to reason broke. It's like your philosophy broke. So an example is something like say you don't have a philosophical theory that tells you why you should be like allowed to think that your hands aren't about to turn into butterflies. Okay, but like your hands still aren't going to turn into butterflies. Like the problem is that you you haven't done your theory thing. But I think we should be very wary of kind of a mistaking ourselves for our theories or, or kind of being too theory forward in our understanding of life. And I think some people, some people in, in these sorts of contexts and especially philosophers, they, they sort of, they really want to have a theory of how they're living or like an abstract model of themselves. And they can kind of query that model. Like they can say, Oh, like suppose I were an expected utility reasoner with utilities on all the possible outcomes. Um, what would I then be doing? And then they want to do that. Um, but it's, I think it's like an important fact that that's not, that's not true of us. We're not, we're not expected utility reasoners of this kind. So if our model stops being able to make decisions, that doesn't mean we stop being able to make decisions. It's, it's, it's like philosophy has broken, but life, life has not broken. And I think that's, life goes on. that's just like a, a general thing to kind of come back to is it's, it's sort of life first and philosophy is a tool for like living with, you know, more, you know, more clear eyed and responsible and, and kind of mature way. But it's, if the tool breaks, you know, you 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 got to push forward and and you still you know there are still stakes there are still things you care about I think you should if you find your philosophy saying oh it doesn't matter if I eat my lunch it doesn't matter if I stab I stab my pencil in my eye it's sort of like well are you sure you think that like you know um, maybe I don't think you're gonna do it <laughs> yeah it sort of seems I you know uh, it doesn't seem like a good idea to not eat your lunch it doesn't seem like a good idea to stab you're not gonna do it and so you know you can kind of come back to that and say why exactly aren't I stabbing my, my pencil in my eye? And maybe actually that's a, there's, there's something there that's actually kind of more solid than your theoretical framework. Yeah. I guess to make the case for dismay <laughs> a bit more. <laughs> um, so, so we kind of go down the list. So like, okay, well, I read this first thing and I'm like, so maybe I never realized this, but I, like my actions are influencing like uh, all kinds of parallel worlds and influencing all these beings across, across the universe. All right, so that's the number one. Okay, and then I'm like, and, you know, I thought I was living in, the, in this universe that I kind of understood the nature of it. But, uh, no, it turns out probably I'm being simulated by, like, some, some other beings. That's, that, that's more likely than not. And, like, what do they want? I don't know. What does the, what does the basement world look? I got no idea. What does that imply about what I should do? I don't know. But it seems like it should imply something. Uh, but So <laughs> now I'm just extremely confused about existence. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I might grasp at the idea that, yeah, I could, I could improve the world. I'll like make a difference, but, <laughs> but, but all, all things maybe exist. And, uh, uh, you know, I could change maybe which universe I exist in, but, you know, other stuff will replace that, uh, in the, in, in the grand scheme of things. So I, I <laughs> okay. And there's, there's other stuff, you know, do we know that anything is good? Yeah, probably not. Like, you know, you think, you think your own experiences like maybe ground that, but it actually doesn't. And it's, uh, it's it's a lot. <laughs> I, it gives it gives me anxiety. Because I'm like, I don't, I, I mean, the other thing is, it really casts doubt on 
whether like any of the actions that you're doing in order to accomplish some goal, like it keeps like all these things. Like the, the, there's so many unpredicted effects of what you're doing. So many unknown. Like these are just the known unknowns. What about all the other stuff we haven't even thought about yet that might like change whether what I'm doing is good or bad? Um, yeah, at some point it just feels so disorientating that you're like, maybe this activity is not for humans and you know i uh, i i thought that uh you know i could make a difference but the universe it turns out it's just too complicated i'm like too small i'm like but a mot of dust in this like insane chaotic sandstorm and you know if only i was smarter or longer lived or something maybe i could figure this stuff out enough to make some predictable difference but perhaps I should just focus on something more human scale, like you know, me and my friends. Uh, like, I think I could impact that. Hopefully, I, <laughs> maybe not, but um, at least I, I might have a shot at that. Whereas this more like cosmic scale stuff, where you kind of you feel like you, you need to get all of this stuff right in order to know what output, like what 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 effect you're going to have. Maybe it's just not something that we're up to. So I think the the way I would approach this, I do think there are. It's, it's very clear that with respect to many of these considerations, we are at square one in being able to act at all wisely with respect to them and should totally recognize that and, and not just sort of march forward and be like, oh, something, something, um, we, we know what we're doing. And I think just in general, it's very often the case that, that we're sufficiently confused or uncertain about something that um, it's not the right use of our time to try to figure it out. And that can be true here and it can be true in all sorts of areas of life, philosophical or no. And, you know, Ignoring stuff is a real option. Um, in fact, it's a super common, it's a very common approach uh, <laughs> to just ignore stuff. Um, and I think, you know, that's always available for, for stuff that seems kind of too hopeless to, to act well with respect to. You know, what happens when you ignore something? It's not, it's not some grand cosmic skin or, or sin. There's just when you ignore something, you uh, lose agency with respect to it. It's no longer the case that your kind of influence on that thing is structured by your understanding of it and your choices. Um, you're sort of letting what happens with that thing be determined by something other whatever would have determined it absent your your input so so ignoring something as i see it is is sort of like staying home on election day about something um it doesn't go away it's just that you stop being able to kind of have an influence on it or or and to the extent you cared about it what you care about will just be subject to other forces but sometimes that's what you do sometimes sometimes that's you know uh you ignore something and i think that's that's okay with a lot of these things and I also think, to be clear, that, you know, for, for people who find that interacting with this stuff is harmful to their motivations or just in general um, is not kind of sitting well or in a healthy way with their psychology, I think it's, it's like, totally fine to drop it. Um, you know, I don't think everyone needs to be thinking about these things. I think there's tons, um, you know, and I, I don't think everyone should be thinking about these things uh, at all. There, there's With respect to human scaleness. So first of all, you know, to be clear, my life is, this is not like my, my life. As I said, this isn't most of what I work on yeah. and, and even beyond like working on kind of big picture questions. I, I, a lot of my life is, is at human scale. I, you know, I have friends, I have family and, you know, all that sort of thing. And I think that's healthy and important. I also, but I also think it's not, but I'm also wary of drawing some sharp line between what is human scale and what is sort of cosmic scale. Like I'm kind of tempted to the extent you want to say, you know, so say the dialectic is like, okay, you show up, you see all these big philosophy ideas, you were, you know, you were really psyched, but I'm going to change the universe. And then you're like, ah, I ran into like a bunch of philosophy stuff. Now you come back to like, okay, maybe I'll just hang out with my friends. Right. And so, okay, so now you're back at home. Cool. Like home is good. It's fine to be at home. You're, you're losing agency with respect to like all these big things, but that's okay. Sometimes you just don't have agency about stuff. And like, so it goes, okay. But now suppose you're like, all right, you're actually feeling kind of comfortable at home. You've got your friends, you're like feeling safe. Now you kind of come out and you're like, oh, it looks like I could save at least like this person's life, right? And 
okay, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe that's kind of human scale too, right? And so you actually start to think about that. Well, okay, what are the effects of that? I can't know. It's like, it is true. It's very complicated. But it's also true. It's complicated. What happens when you do something with your friend? Or there's, there's not sort of, I think, a super deep difference there. And I think there's not a super deep difference as we start to expand out. And I think in general, we should be quite wary of somehow like coming back to a human scale made you like, uh, indifferent to geopolitics or indifferent to like, you know, the prospect of World War Three or to like US China tensions or, or you know, like that's, that's a, a big red flag about your philosophy. If suddenly it, it, it's sort of similar to being like, apparently, I shouldn't eat my lunch. If you're sort of like, apparently, uh, you know, war doesn't matter, or apparently nuclear w- war wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be bad, or then I'm kind of like, huh, like, I think you should, I think you should reexamine. And so I guess I want to say it's fine to come back to something that feels like, real and familiar and like you're able to really orient towards it in a good way. But then I also think there's still a question of like, how far do you venture out? And I think we do see that as you venture out quite far, it becomes a bit of a wilderness and we get more confused and it becomes, there's a need for humility and kind of caution and and understanding how little we know. But I, I personally don't, for example, stop caring about what happens in the future or caring about factory farming or caring about all the, all the things I cared about before. And I think that would be a red flag about your philosophy if somehow it, it stopped mattering, if things that like really mattered to you stopped mattering. And I think that's probably your philosophy's fault rather than the world's. Yeah, I think I guess the thing that kind of runs through my head as I'm like reading stuff is I'm just like, existence is such a joke. Like, I can't believe that this like has been imposed upon us that we like exist in this world. Like, you know, insects that are that are created, they're just like, they have no concept of what they are, of where they are, of how they ended up uh, on on this earth, and then they like die after a week or something. And I'm like, sometimes you feel like you're not like that, and other times you're like, I am just so small. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> now, now, so, so, so there's, there's a dark angle to that, which is like just feeling this kind of loss of agency, yeah, loss of agency. But I guess maybe like finding it funny in some way kind of can be consolation. That there is something very amusing about our circumstance, even the like, the, I guess, you know, uh, science fiction authors or people who've done like sci-fi comedy stuff have definitely reached for this at times that I guess it's, it's like a, a clash between kind of the hubris of human beings and our desire to like understand and control things. And just the fact that in, that we are so, so finite in this like infinite world of stuff that we've like barely uh, even thought about. And I, I, I guess like I, <laughs> that kind of dark humor uh, aspect of things, like sometimes I find helpful in other situations. So maybe I could find it useful here. So one thing on the, on the ants point, an interesting difference between ants and humans is in this case, you're, you as an ant are sitting there going like, I am an ant. Oh my God, like oh God. I'm small. I'm realizing that I'm really ignorant and, and there's like this giant universe and I didn't realize that. Wow. The ants actually aren't doing that. So that's interesting. That's a sort of non-ant characteristic. And actually, I think in general, philosophy for me is part a deep part of the aspiration is to kind of come into a more conscious and aware and kind of intentional relationship with our situation, including our ignorance um, and our uncertainty and our smallness and all the rest. I do think it's very plausible that, you know, sometimes I imagine like that, you know, if the super intelligent aliens, let's set aside sim stuff for a second, assume our empirical situation is kind of fairly normal with respect to like, it's Earth, we've got a big future ahead of us. But I imagine somehow if there were aliens who could kind of see us, I do think like if we were going around being like, confidently, like I've solved infinite ethics, like I know what it is, or you know, do, do, do. it's like, I think the aliens like are laughing at those people. Lol. Um, <laughs> I, think, like, I think, I think the aliens are like, oof, that looks really rough. <laughs> but I think, 
people who are going like, wow, I'm realizing just how little we know. I'm realizing just how early we are in the in the kind of potential history of our civilization and just how much um, could be in the future. I mean, there's this line from Seneca in The Precipice where he's sort of like, I, you know, there are times will come. Uh, I forget exactly the line where, you know, things not now known will be will become known and stuff like that. And I read Seneca, I'm like, that guy got it. Like, he was on it. <laughs> he was like, I, he's realizing how, how little he knows and how much there is to learn. And I think, I think we should do that too. And I think what that looks like in practice for me, or at least a, a general first pass, is working quite hard to make sure that our civilization reaches a, a kind of stage of much greater wisdom and empowerment where we can kind of, we'll be less ants, we will be more mature, we'll be more able to kind of look ourselves and the universe in the eye and kind of understand what's really going on and act maturely in light of these considerations and all sorts of other unknown unknowns that could come up. And I actually think that's just generally going to be in many, many cases, a much more robust strategy and a much more kind of useful point of focus than trying to work directly on these issues now. So if, if someone, someone interested in these topics comes along, like, oh, like, all right, we got to figure this out. I'm sort of like, well, I'm not sure we do need to figure it out. I think we should kind of check if there's anything that really matters for us now. That's where we can't defer to future people. And I think there's, there are questions there. But as a first pass heuristic, I think it's reasonable to mostly try to get our civilization to a less ant-like state, one where it can um, can kind of deal with these with these questions better. And I also think that that's something that doesn't, to me, have an aura of like, oh my god, that's so intractable. Who knows? You know, who knows what happens? Is is like, you know, is everyone going, everyone dying in a massive pandemic, good or bad for that? I'm like, I'm like, eh, it's probably bad. And 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 you know, and like, uh, <laughs> uh, and you know, same with AI stuff. And and uh, there's just the the, the kind of Normal discourse about existential risk, I think, applies very much to whether our civilization reaches a wiser state as well. And and so that's that's like another important piece for me and 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 related to the ants thing. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe let's push on to that. Uh, so I, I kind of let's put this into like, how do we handle this emotionally and personally? And then this kind of, well, and what does this actually imply for our actions? And despite the fact that it's so disorientating, I think weirdly, it maybe does spit out in a recommendation, which you were just kind of saying, which is that if you really think that there's a good chance that you're not understanding things, then something that you could uh, do that at least like probably has, a, has some shot of helping is, well, just put like future generations in a better position to solve these questions once they have lots of time and uh, hopefully are like a whole lot smarter and much more informed than, than we are. In, in the same way that kind of current generations have, have I think, a, a much better understanding of things than we did 10,000 years ago. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you want to say anything further about why that still holds up and maybe what that would involve? Sure. So in the, in the thesis, I have this distinction between what I call welfare long-termism and wisdom long-termism, where welfare long-termism is roughly the idea that our kind of moral focus should be on specifically the welfare of future gen of the kind of finite number of future people who might who might live in our in our like uh, light cone. And where wisdom long-termism is a sort of broader idea that our moral focus should be reaching a kind of wise and empowered civilization in general. And I think I think of welfare long-termism as sort of like a lower bound on the stakes of the future more broadly. Like it, at the very least, the future matters at least as much as the kind of welfare of the future people matters. But to the extent there are other issues that might be kind of like game-changing or even more important, um, I think the the future will be in a, a much better position to deal with those than we are if we can, if we can uh, at least if we can make the right sort of future. I think digging into the details of, okay, what does that actually imply? Exactly how, exactly in what circumstances should you be focusing on this sort of, this sort of long-termism? How do you make trade-offs if you're uncertain about the value of the future? I don't think it's like a simple argument necessarily. It strikes me in when I look at it holistically as quite a robust and kind of sensible approach. Um, like I don't, for example, in infinite ethics, if someone comes to me like, no, Joe, let's not get 
let's not get to a wiser future. Instead, let's like do blah thing about infinities right now. I'm kind of like, that's sounding to me like it's not going to go that well. <laughs> like, I'm just yeah. like, I, I think the like kind of our, our best shot at like doing well. I feel like you haven't learned the right lesson here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's sort of, yeah. sort of what I think, I, especially on the infinity stuff. There's a line in, in Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, about something like, ah, if you're digging a hole, but there's like a bulldozer coming, like maybe you should wonder about the value of, of digging the hole. I also think we're plausibly on the cusp of like pretty radical advances in, in humanities, like understanding and science and other things where, you know, there might be a lot more leverage and a lot more impact from kind of making sure that the stuff you're doing is like matters specifically to how that goes rather than to just kind of increasing our share of knowledge overall. Like you want to be focusing on decisions we need to make now um, that we would have wanted to make differently. So it looks good to me, the sort of focus on the, on the long-term future. I want to be clear that I think it's not kind of perfectly safe. And I think a thing we just generally need to give up is the hope that we will kind of have a theory that that sort of makes sense of everything and such that we sort of know that we're acting in the sort of safe way and it's not going to go wrong and it's not going to have backfired. And, and I think there can, way, there can be a way that people look to philosophy as a kind of mode of kind of Archimedean orientation towards the world that will sort of tell them how to live and like justify their actions and kind of give a kind of comfort and structure that I think at some point we need to we need to give up. So for example, like, you know, you can use, you can say like, ah, trying to reach a wise and empowered future can totally backfire. There are worlds where you should not do that. You should do other things. There are worlds where like, um, you know, what you will learn when you get to the future, if you get there is that you shouldn't have been trying to do it. You should have been doing something else. And now it's too late. There's just like all sorts of scenarios that, you know, you are not sort of safe with respect to. And I think that's something that we're just going to have to, to live with. I mean, we already live with it. And uh, but it looks it looks pretty good to me from where I'm sitting. Okay, so there's like a bunch of these fundamental issues that we haven't really sorted out. There's probably a bunch more that we haven't even noticed that we haven't sorted out yet. But if we like put our descendants into a better position, they're, they're smarter than us. They've got plenty of time, and they're, and they're they're even more numerous, perhaps. So they got like they can throw a million people at the infinite ethics thing and and try to figure make the make the best of it that they can. Then we'll we'll make the best of each of these different things, and we'll kind of figure stuff out in a way that like you and I can't really imagine doing. And then they'll figure out like what actions that that, that might imply, and they can and, and they can do it. I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and and I'm definitely like you. I'm 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 really on board with uh, like the. Or at least, I don't know, <laughs> especially after the last week, uh, I'm like, yeah, wisdom, wisdom approach. What do you call it? Wisdom long-termism. This, this, seems, this seems like the best crack of the whip that we have, certainly compared to committing to something today if, 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 if we can avoid it. it. Yeah, as you say, it doesn't completely evade it because like, may, maybe there's like, maybe it's actually bad to do that, basically. Maybe there'll be some consideration that will show that, in fact, being smarter and more informed, in fact, like backfires on you. Or like maybe it would be better if instead uh, of becoming like more resilient and more organized, instead we went extinct uh, and for reasons that we like can't yet understand, it actually is going to be worse to continue. And I suppose you kind of just have to bank on the hope that that's not the case. Or like at least it's like less than 50% likely that that's the case, that we're better off progressing and trying to get wiser than not doing it, even though we don't know where it's going to lead precisely. Which I guess, yeah, I, 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 guess, I think I can be okay with that. I, it also does seem like it points towards particular actions about trying to preserve flexibility, trying to yeah make sure that our children are in a good situation the world is stable it's like little conflict uh it's like you know if artificial intelligence is going to be involved in all of that that you know it has the we, we, we turn it to the to the right purposes and also like a concern about the well-being of, of future digital minds and so on all makes sense yeah is there anything maybe you want to say about why we shouldn't be so concerned that in fact it would be better to like go become ignorant or just disappear that uh, that unbalance it's better to to try to become better smarter more informed agents I don't know if I have a, a lot 
deep to say there. I mean, maybe one analogy would be like, suppose you're like a child and you're wondering like, should I grow and learn or should I, I mean, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what, but it's like, should I kill myself now? Should I, should I focus on, um, you know, remain a toddler? uh, Yeah. You could remain a toddler. You could like commit really hard to your current philosophy as a toddler. I mean, you could work on infinite (laughs) ethics now as a toddler. Um, and, and, uh, crayon focused ethics. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're like, ah, if I draw, um, so I guess I want to bring in similar heuristics that in general, we're always making bets where things could always be wrong and bad in lots of ways. And that's true of even the most robust seeming stuff like surviving and becoming smarter and, and understanding ourselves better and, and understanding the world better. But, you know, there are these basic things of like, well, if you understand things better, often you can orient towards them better. If you care about stuff, often your existence will be a way of being a good force for caring about it. It seems like just in general, the track record of human humanity kind of learning more and and progressing has some stuff to be said for it, though it's not unambiguous. So I do think there's more work to be done here. And I think we can say quite, we can really what you'd want to do if you're assessing different candidate strategies here is to get into your probabilities on different sorts of futures and how good will they be and what's the value of information and what's your, what's your uncertainty about different, um, you know, what are the alternatives? And I think, I think it's actually quite an involved analysis to make a kind of more rigorous argument that various types of, of focus on getting to a, a kind of increasing the future people's kind of wisdom and empowerment is sort of the right call relative to other hypotheses. I think the most salient, the most salient alternative is like, now I think more about this stuff, like at least with respect to crazy train stuff, there's, there's a, a salient alternative to sort of try to think more about it now. And I think, you know, my best guess is it's worth having like a few people doing that. Um, I think, you know, checking if there's, if there's stuff that matters right now and that can't be punched to future people. And I also think we should be wary of having kind of Pollyanna-ish or naive pictures of what the future will be. I think sometimes there's this assumption that, well, if we just don't go extinct, then the future will be this wise thing and the future and the people will do, they'll act on the wisdom and it'll be great. And all we have to do is sort of not fall off the train. And I think that might also be a kind of misleading picture of the of the kind of landscape ahead of us. And there may be other forms of influence that are more important or other factors that, that matter. So it is a big, it's a big question and I don't, don't claim to have answered it, but I, I think the intuition I want to pump more generally is like, it's possible to think about this. This is a decent first pass. Like don't stab pencils into your eye. Don't like stop saying war matters. I don't know. There's just like, I don't think this like dislodges our, our basic orientation towards the world. I think it just like adds um, some complexity, adds the need for humility and, and adds some additional, additional reason to kind of get to a wiser and more empowered state. Mm. So there's an alternative framing that you could uh, try is, let's say that your goal was already to try to uh, produce a wiser future for our civilization. And then people start bringing you all of these specific things about, oh, what if we're in a simulation? What about uh, what, what about like our decision theory is broken? And you're basically like, you're getting lost in the details. Uh, like, we'll figure it out. Right now, what we're doing is like building the city and like making sure there's plenty of people to eventually solve all of these issues. And like, you're, you're, you might say, you know, you're, you're missing the forest for the trees here. And I think maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe that is a sensible mentality to have to these, at least as, as an individual who's like hasn't decided to specialize in in seeing what we can make of of those issues in as much as they as they matter today. Just yeah, one thing on that is like I think the standard I would use when someone comes to you with an argument like that is not like could this matter at all, but more like does this suggest something that seems actively better than having the future people deal with it? Sometimes they can make arguments of that form. But I think it's just like a higher standard, and that's the standard I would use. 
Yeah. One concept that I uh, thought we might introduce uh, earlier, but maybe we should do now, is um, epistemic learned helplessness, uh, which it, it's, it's an expression I really like because it slightly blindsides you because I think I, I should, I'd assume for, for a long time that epistemic learned helplessness was a bad thing. It certainly doesn't sound great, but it, uh, but it actually probably has a, has a lot of uh, merit to it. Uh, yeah, can you explain what it is? Sure. So epistemic learned helplessness, I think, I think it's a term coined by Scott Alexander in, in a um, blog post about this. I think that's right. And I think the basic idea is sort of, I think he, at an early early part of life, he, he was sort of enamored of various conspiracy theories. He was reading these, or, or maybe he would he would read one conspiracy theory and then he would read a rebuttal and, and, and he would be sort of convinced by each in turn and he eventually kind of gave up and he's like, I'm just going to trust the experts because apparently I can be convinced of anything. And I do think this is a real dynamic. I think there, you know, there are people where, you know, if they talk to someone and that person seems smart and confident, they're like, ah, oh, and they really kind of take in that belief and then they go and talk to someone else who disagrees and they're like, ah, oh, and, and they're sort of ping-ponging back, you know, back and forth between um, between people who seem credible or between arguments in general. And and so epistemic learned helplessness is sort of a response where you realize like, ah, apparently evaluating arguments is not for me. It's sort of uh, whether something's <laughs> It's seems, not my strength. <laughs> it's not my strength. You know, if, if, if something seems convincing, that's just not an important signal about whether it's convincing. And so, and there's a question like, okay, well, what do you do instead? And sometimes there's a notion of like, I don't know, trust common sense or trust the experts or something. Of course, that in itself is not safe. There's not, it's not like the experts are, are always right, but it can, certainly I think stuff of this type influences you know, people's response to all sorts of things, including the crazy train stuff. And I think, and I think it's sort of reasonable if you find yourself kind of, if you know of yourself that you can be convinced of anything by anyone who sounds smart and confident or who you decide is smarter than you, like there's a lot of people smarter than you. So certainly the standard should not be like, I met someone who's smarter than me and they think something blah, you know. So I'm just going to take that, run with it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to take that. Like you got it. And so um, you'll just be sort of hijacked by the first smart person you meet. And so we need some sort of discernment there. My own approach to this is to basically try to really notice which things I feel like I've evaluated enough to be a signal with respect to and to kind of hold things differently. I, I mean, obviously this is all on a spectrum, but for me, there's sort of, you know, roughly there's sort of categories of ideas where I've heard about it. And I'm kind of, this is where the simulation argument, for example, used to be for me. It's like, I'd heard about it. I was like, ah, that's kind of interesting. Various people I know who I take seriously kind of take this argument seriously too. It feels kind of slippery. It feels like if I thought about this, like I'd probably find some like problems with it that they're not saying, or there's probably objections that I haven't heard. And so I sort of logged it as like interesting to be learned more about, but not like world upending. Oh my God. And I just think like that was an appropriate reaction. (laughs) Now, I've now though written a whole paper about it and really thought about it and looked at the literature. And I feel like my relationship to it is actually different at this point. I feel like I can sort of see the structure for myself. I don't think I'm like deferring to a ton of people on various bits of it. I feel like I have a kind of more direct clarity about the ways it could be wrong um, and like the parts of it that could be confused. I don't I don't feel like I know what the upshot should be, but I feel like I kind of I feel kind of empowered with respect to the structure of the argument and 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 the considerations at stake. And so I feel like I'm in a a different position where sort of my view on this, like I kind of would have discovered if there was some, if there was some like really obvious hole in the argument, I think at this point I would have hit it at least relative to my current um, like epistemic capacities. And, and, and so I don't think I should just be totally epistemically learned helpless about it. I think other people, you know, shouldn't necessarily trust me on that. And and I generally, a thing I try to do with lots of these, you know, there's a lot of wild ideas running around here. I've worked on AI risk. Part of what I was trying to do with AI risk was to like, okay, this is a really important idea, but I really want to think about it. And so I went and I wrote this whole report trying to like really think, really think through the issue myself. And part of that is an attempt to kind of retain the ability to, to kind of get signal from investigation and research in the midst of like a bunch of ideas and a bunch of smart people running around. Yeah. 
But yeah, I think I think we should probably uh, wrap up this section and, and move on to the next one. Uh, so you mentioned earlier this idea of it's, it's possible with, with this idea that the effects of our actions could be far broader than we had initially appreciated. Uh, it's possible to kind of picture us as one civilization in a much broader system of you know uh, agents that are trying to figure out how to how to make their world better. C- can you can, yeah? Can you explain how how that idea works? One one upshot of the a causal stuff is what I see as a kind of basic reorientation in the stage on which you could be possibly acting. So I think often folks who are kind of long-termists or working within that sort of narrative imagine, okay, there's this, you know, there's this single earth and they're kind of facing entirely forward. They're, they're just looking at this sort of light cone ahead of them and sort of the, this affectable universe and, and the, the causal impacts in that domain. And, and sort of what long-termism says is, hey, look at this space. There's, there's actually a ton of moral patience there. And so it sort of points to these, this big place and to the, all the moral patients there and say, hey, that's, that's important. Hey, listeners, uh, Rob here. Joe just used the term light cone, uh, which is a useful term to know if you, if you haven't heard it before. Basically, Earth's light cone is all of the accessible universe that one could get to from here if one were traveling at the speed of light. So it's kind of another term for the accessible universe, at least if one were able to travel at the speed of light. Uh, I think it's called a light cone, or at least the the thing that it brings to my mind, uh, is if you project the universe as kind of a 2D plane, as you might have seen maybe in a a physics textbook or in some cosmology thing, where you've got time along the x-axis and the universe kind of expanding out in in an ever-growing bubble as it gets larger then the space that you could get to from Earth traveling at the speed of light basically looks like this cone that gets uh, bigger and bigger uh, as, as, as time progresses because, of course, you could have reached further from Earth uh, the, longer, the longer time goes on. But uh, as you might know, the universe is expanding and it's expanding at an increasing rate. Uh, so there's still plenty of things that one can't get to uh, traveling at the speed of light from Earth. And the accessible universe, the amount of stuff that we can get to, is constantly uh, shrinking over over time as more stuff uh, receive, you know, but just, just becomes too distant from us and is uh, traveling away from us at too quick a speed. All right, so that's, uh, that's, that's Lightcone. Back to the interview. I think a thing that a causal thing can do is something analogous where where instead of looking forward, you also start to look kind of horizontally, like your lens widens substantially and maybe even kind of includes, starts to include the past or, or um, things kind of a much bigger space. And again, kind of points to that space and say, hey, look at all those moral patients, you know, and I think I think we should notice when, you know, when that happens, I think we should we should sit up straight. I think there's like a decent track record for like, ah, big thing with lots of moral patients, plausible argument for it. I think it's sort of worth worth noticing that. So that's just one thing I'll say about it. For me, you know, it's like less, there's less of a kind of clear, uh, this is the specific action relevant upshot of a causal stuff and more like there's a kind of basic reorientation in where your vision is going and you're sort of suddenly maybe looking, looking to different places in, in terms of what, what your actions do. So a thing that changes both in the context of a causal stuff and also to some extent Sims and just in general, once you start taking seriously that, you know, maybe there's such a thing as like really advanced civilizations and technological maturity and stuff like that is, I think there is a sense in which you can become kind of humbler about humanity's place in the universe in our particular time, where I think often there's a, um, the narrative when you just focused on our specific section of the universe is kind of like, we're alone. And the main deal, the main question is like, what happens with us and, and earth? And, and also what happens with sort of our future in particular, the sort of stars and galaxies or whatever we could have affected. But I think that in combination, a number of these considerations about a causal stuff and Sims and other things suggest a somewhat different picture where in fact, there's, it's a much more kind of 
already inhabited place. Like there's just possibly just many, many civilizations already out there. Very, very, very advanced civilizations, civilizations towards which we're, we're you know, we're like kind of really newcomers on the scene. We're, we're just kind of, just kind of entering into what is possibly, and you know, it's obviously there's tons of, this is totally speculative, but I think in some sense it may be that this is kind of a, a community or in some sense there's like a, you know, a whole, a whole scene, a whole set of interacting, you know, civilizations and agents and all sorts of stuff going on where I think this might call to mind a sort of different set of heuristics and, and ethical principles and orientations, which, which have more to do with, okay, you're sort of, um, what does it mean to be a kind of c- citizen or to be kind of joining this community in some sense? Like, what is the, what are the sort of norms you want to uphold? What is, what is sort of good cosmic citizenship look like, as opposed to kind of optimizing your stars or something like that? What is it to like join this community in like a healthy way and to like be a contributor and, and a kind of, you know, uh, now, this is like, I think just a one vibe. It's, it's very speculative. There's like a lot of complexity and a lot of different vibes that could be appropriate here. But I do think there's something, there's something about the change in narrative that some of this offers that, that I think could end up important. That it's not that we're, we may not be as like alone as, as the sort of mainstream long-termist narrative can suggest. Yeah. Yeah, I find it a, a little bit inspiring, the idea of imagining, well, the universe is a very big place. One positive thing about it is like, well, there'd be a lot of other civilizations out there wishing us the best, hoping that we manage to get to the same place that they managed to get to. So, and some of them will have figured these things out. And, you know, we can we can maybe aspire to that. And I suppose if the A-causal stuff is is legitimate, maybe we can coordinate with them in, in some very peculiar way. Pushing on. Two major things you've worked on since 2019 are how much computational power does it take to match the human brain? Uh, and this other report uh, is power-seeking AI, uh, an existential risk. We haven't focused on those two today because you felt, I think, reasonably that um, quite a few guests have talked about similar themes on the show before. Yeah, but I wanted to just briefly ask you uh, kind of what AI risk scenario you were analyzing in that second report on power-seeking AI and I guess, yeah, how worried about it you ended up being. Yeah, first of first, what, what is the issue of power-seeking AI? So the basic issue is that it looks like we're on track and, in fact, trying very hard to build AI systems that look a lot like a second advanced species on this planet. And, you know, a species that's sort of a set of agents that's, that's able to use technology and do science and, and that's just sort of smarter than humans. And the basic thought is that that's just an extremely serious and scary thing to do. That that's, you're kind of playing with a hotter fire than we've ever played with as a civilization. The sort of fire that accounts for humanity's existing impact on the planet, which has been quite dramatic and unprecedented. And that it's the sort of fire that could just get out of control very easily. And if you if it gets out of control, you kind of can't recover. Uh, and so that's that. I think that's the basic issue. Somewhat more specifically, I think there are plausible arguments that intelligent agents, by default, will seek various forms of power over their environment. You know, basically because power helps you achieve your goals. And it looks like, from our current perspective, like it's going to be hard to build agents that don't do that, but that are suitably powerful to kind of do the other things we wanted them for in the first place. You know, there are various various technical problems there. And, you know, and more broadly, we just really don't understand the, the AI systems that we're building right now. But it looks like there are going to be a lot of actors in the space. There are going to be a lot of very strong incentives to push forward with these systems. People are going to have varying levels of caution. It's going to be hard to coordinate. And so, you know, it looks very disturbingly plausible that we just sort of barrel ahead anyway um, and kind of build agents that we, we can't control and we don't understand. And then disaster ensues and, and we can't recover. Yeah. I suppose in terms of power seeking, there's this, there's this very natural argument that kind of no matter what uh, specific goals you happen to have, 
you're probably not going to want to be destroyed uh, or turned off. And you probably also want to, you know, accumulate influence and maybe resources as well. So it's kind of, you know, humans have a wide range of different, well, not a super wide range, but they have uh, some range of, you know, uh, things that they want to pursue in life. But by and large, they try not to die. uh, And they also try to, you know, have enough money to like potentially exchange it for the things that they care about. And I guess I think this uh, sometimes called instrumental convergence, where it's kind of no no matter what, like ultimately you're aiming for very often, you'll want to like survive and, uh, and, and gain influence. Is that the idea behind why, you know, artificial intelligence systems, regardless of like what specific thing they um, have evolved or I'm going, to, I'm going to say evolve. Some people won't, won't like that, but uh, no matter what they've kind of evolved to, uh, to specifically care about, they, they might well end up seeking power just because it's useful almost regardless. That's the basic argument. I think there's more we can say about why we should expect AI systems, uh, kind of commercially incentivized AI systems to have goals in the first place and to have various forms of understanding and awareness of their world and the incentives at play with respect to those goals. But yeah, roughly speaking, uh, the thought is for a wide variety of goals various forms of, of power and resources and influence and survival are are going to be important. And so um, to the extent AI systems will have goals, and I think there are reasons to think that we should worry. Yeah. I guess this was one of the, well, these two reports were some of the first things that you worked on when you joined OpenPhil. Yeah. Why did you decide to, to work on that rather than, you know, one of the other research questions that they have on the boil? So for the, the power seeking report in particular, I had a few goals. One I mentioned earlier is just, you know, this is a really important question. It's a really important issue, and I was potentially going to spend a lot more time on it. And so I really wanted to have vetted it and understood it myself. And then I also wanted, at the time I was writing, you know, there was some energy in different places, including a little bit on on your podcast, actually, of people saying, ah, you know, I feel like these arguments actually haven't been vetted and haven't been written up clearly. And I feel like there's a bunch of ambiguity about how they work. And, and if you let go of certain assumptions, then then I think they fall apart. And I felt like that wasn't right. But I did I did feel that there was a kind of deficit of people having really gone through and kind of made the case as a whole and tried to lay it out, you know, as clearly as possible. And so I wanted I wanted to do that. And then I also felt like there was there were some narratives that didn't seem to me right, where People would say, for example, that the argument really, really rests on certain assumptions about the speed of what's known as takeoff, where which is the sort of transition from, you know, broadly human level systems to really super intelligent systems, um, or that they really rest on the notion that like a single system will take over the world or something like that. And and that more broadly, I think there was there was, you know, there were various narratives floating around where people were sort of saying, well, there's like so many different types of arguments. You know, there's the Yudkowsky argument, and then there's the Paul Cristiano one argument, and then there's the Paul Cristiano two argument, and then there's the something, you know, and then there was just like a bunch of a sense of like, uh, is this, is this a kind of disorganized mess? And I actually, my, my own take was, no, I think there's a, there's a single core argument here. And it's the argument I, or in my opinion, it's sort of this, this concern about power seeking and about, about agents, agent seeking power. And, and that a lot of the other scenarios were sort of subcategories of that, but that there was a kind of unified core here that it was going to be important to bring out. And so part of what I was trying to do was to clarify that and kind of set it up for what seemed to me like a more productive debate. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I I do just feel like if you think just just like setting aside all of the specifics, the idea that we're going to create this new species that is like substantially more capable than us in all kinds of different ways, and you'd be like, is that going to go well? Uh, maybe, but also maybe not. Uh, it seems like really the, the analogy of kind of playing with fire, especially you know, fire can spread, and so can agents that can reproduce and copy themselves. 
I almost felt like, you know, if we looked at him, we're like, no, it's going to be completely fine. Uh, I'd be glad to say, maybe we should check that again. Uh, because I feel like uh, it's a little bit like saying, yeah, yeah, walking across this like tightrope across this, uh, you know, rushing river is completely safe. Don't worry about it. I'd be like, I, I feel like, I feel like we haven't understood the situation very, very well. Um, so it's that, it's like kind of initial raw, raw intuition that does a lot of the, a lot of the work for me. Um, yeah, after thinking and talking about this for, for a couple of years, I guess, did you end up maybe more worried than you did coming in? Or were you, were you perhaps a bit reassured having interrogated some of the specific you know, disagreements more closely? So when I first wrote the report, mostly what I wanted to do was kind of lay out the issues and just kind of really, really have, have kind of structured the debate. But I also did, I included a section which was offering a kind of loose subjective estimate of, of the risk by, by 2070 from this sort of scenario. And I tried to not just have a, a number that came totally from nowhere. I tried to set up a kind of premise, premise, conclusion argument and, and assign credences to the premises and, and kind of get a number out at the end. And the number I gave, I got there was 5% risk by 2070, which I was, you know, I had a bunch of caveats on and, and stuff like that. I've since come to think that that number was too low. And that's for, you know, various reasons. I, you know, I talked with lots of people and kept thinking about it. Um, there were a few, a few major factors. One was, I just noticed that I was more scared than that <laughs> implied. Like, I, I think in particular, when I imagined that we were actually, if I tried to really condition on, okay, we are, we are building super intelligent agents and, you know, these are, they're going to be in the world, which I had like very high probability on. I think, and I think then my, my numbers were implying that I was like 90% that it was going to be fine. And I was like, ah, I think actually that's not how I'm going to feel. Uh, it's, it's related to the thing you said about, uh, maybe we should check that again. I think, I, I think I'm going to be a lot more scared than, than kind of 10% uh, in that scenario. And then there's various related intuitions of trying to really condition on, okay, you're really seeing all, you know, you're really seeing blah, things are true, blah, things are true, blah, things are true, how are you feeling? So working through that made a difference for me. Another one was I had some feeling like, if the risk is that low, I should have better stories about why it's fine, and how things go well. Like, I think when I listen to people talk about like, oh, we'll solve it this way or something, I, it feels, I don't feel super reassured. And so that I think that was another flag for me. And, and then more broadly, I did, you know, I briefly spent a little bit of time trying to like, build alternative models and alternative ways of setting up the argument and, and kind of assigning credences in different ways. And that those were spitting out substantially higher numbers. And so um, anyway, I, I got, kind of got pulled into some other things. So I never finished up that work, but I, I, as a kind of half intermediate measure, I sort of threw a note into the, into the report saying, actually, I think this number should be higher. You know, I, I said above 10%. And, uh, you know, I, I just haven't gotten back, gotten a chance to kind of return to that. Um, there's also been a bunch of additional commentary on the report, like a bunch of people wrote reviews, a bunch of people, you know, kind of built off of it or, or expressed their disagreements and critiques. I found that really helpful. Um, people can find that. I mean, maybe we can link to it in the show notes. But I, I do feel like the report, you know, my main goal was to sort of stimulate discussion and spark debate and kind of get additional clarity. And I and I, and I feel good about its its impact in that respect. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely return to return to these issues uh, before too long. And I suppose, yeah, folks who want to read them properly can, uh, can I guess, uh, Google um, how much computational power does it take to match the human brain? Uh, and uh, yeah, is power seeking AI an existential risk? Uh, you also, I think, th- I think they're on your uh, audio feed, uh, Joe Carsmith Audio, and, and you have a video presentation uh, of the of the latter one. Okay, yeah, we are. Uh, despite this being a pretty lengthy conversation, we, we had to cut a bunch of stuff for for time. Uh, ideas for other topics that we that we wanted to cover, uh, and two, I just wanted to bring to listeners' attention because they're specifically because they're things that you wrote in order to rebut ideas that have appeared on on this podcast, among many other places. Yeah, the first is against meta ethical hedonism, which you know, among other things, explains why you're not convinced by the arguments that Sharon Hewitt Rowlett put forward in her book, uh, The Feeling of Value, and uh, talked. 
about quite a bit back in episode 138 uh, on why pleasure and pain are the only things that intrinsically matter. And the other one uh, is Against the Normative Realist's Wager, which is an article you wrote that explains why you're not convinced that we should act as if normative realism is correct, even if we think it's probably uh, not. And that idea, I think, it has been raised on the show a couple of different times. Uh, people could definitely find it in my first interview with Will McCaskill, uh, which is episode 17 on moral uncertainty, utilitarianism, and how to avoid being a moral monster. Yeah, we, uh, we're just a uh, good fight time to crown them in today. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, people who have found those ideas convincing, I think, should go and check out your uh, your responses and, and see what they think of them. As a final question, because we've talked about a bunch of somewhat somewhat strange ideas today, and, and like our general view is that you should kind of hold them fairly lightly and, and inspect them at a distance and not uh, not exact not, not go all in and start taking big actions on the on the basis of them. But are there any kind of funny things that you actually have done <laughs> in, in in your own personal life on the basis of uh, you know strange ideas that you've encountered uh in your, in your in your philosophy work so i think the decision theory stuff we talked about has influenced how i think about various forms of cooperation and, and the value of, of kind of keeping commitments to myself and to other people you know just a small example even when i, I at times i will i'll do i'll sort of make deals with different parts of myself and i think that the decision theory work has influenced my sense of the importance of kind of staying true to those deals. So if I say to one part of myself, like, oh, like, we'll do that later, I want to make sure I really do it. You know, you can do that from a a causal decision theory perspective, too. But I think in general, something about like, the importance of being able to kind of count on each other and commitments and 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 trust has, has come forward for me in virtue of the of the decision theory work. Yeah, I think the weirdest thing I've done I mean, you know, I think the weirdest thing is even thinking about these things at all. So I think I've, you know, I've started <laughs> thinking much yeah. more much more than you know, the vast majority of humans ever about, you know, a causal interaction with uh, aliens. And so, you know, that's, that's like a, um, you know, that's just like a weird thing to have happened in my life. Yeah, you have this great line in uh, your, one of your essays. I think it's like, if you ever find yourself taking actions, hoping that the thing that you're doing might make people in the past have acted better, like you should seriously contemplate that perhaps you've completely lost your marbles. <laughs> Is uh is is fair enough, um. But yeah, I hope uh, I hope your uh, your your increasing interest in keeping promises and so on means that uh, if you're ever stranded in the desert, uh, you definitely get picked up and brought back to the city, so we can we can we can have more of uh, more of your uh, articles on your website. Yeah, I'm so I'm so paying in the city. That one's so easy. I I just <laughs> do, do do you hear that people in trucks uh, yeah. who are <laughs> driving through deserts? Joe's 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 your man. It's ten thousand dollars. Like, come on. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, 10, but it's like your whole life. Like, <laughs> just, just pay the money. Um, my guest today has been Joe Carsmith. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Joe. Thanks for having me, bro. As always, there's lots of links if you'd like to learn more on the blog post associated with this episode, uh, all lovingly compiled by Katie Moore, who also puts in the effort to, uh, to post the transcripts and stick in uh, links, to, links to explanations on, on any unusual terms that come up. And if you'd like more episodes with challenging moral philosophy in them, then I can suggest going back into the archives and listening to episodes like 86, Hilary Graves on Pascal's mugging, strong long-termism, and whether existing can be good for us. Episode 115, David Wallace on the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics and its implications. 
There's also 137, Andreas Moensen, on whether effective altruism is just for consequentialists. And there's number 98, uh, which I think until this episode uh, was maybe the one that I would have regarded as the most technically challenging, or at least uh, it, pu- it pushed me to my limit. Uh, that's uh, Christian Tarzny on future bias and a possible solution to moral fanaticism. A- an excellent episode. Uh, I learned a lot. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing by Myla Maguire and Ben Cordell. And as I said, full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.